What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 45 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with Tom Sherrington. Having trained as a physics teacher, Tom has over 30 years of school leader experience, working in a wide variety of school contexts, including several schools in the UK and also in Jakarta, Indonesia. After 11 years as a head teacher, Tom is now an educational consultant, supporting schools with teacher development, school improvement, assessment, curriculum design, and much more, as I'm sure you'll gather from this episode. I came across Tom's work via his incredible blog, teacherhead.com, several years ago, and I can't emphasize just how excellent Tom's blog is. I'm not sure how many posts there are on there, probably several thousand, but I've found that if I go onto teacherhead.com and search for any keyword to do with school leadership or teaching and learning, I'll always find a post with down-to-earth and helpful guidance. Now, more recently, Tom has had immense success with two of his books in particular, Rosenstein's Principles in Action and teaching walkthroughs. Now, this is a bit of a unique episode of the ERRR. Usually we focus on one particular book, idea, or article from our guest and tailor the interview to that topic. Now, I thought about doing this for Tom, but I felt that given Tom's breadth of experience, there was a bigger opportunity for this podcast. Instead, in this episode, we draw on Tom's multi-decade experience to discuss the most important thing in relation to a wide range of topics in education. At the school leadership level, here are some of the questions that I asked Tom in this episode. What's the most important thing for schools embarking upon the school improvement process? What's the most important thing when it comes to curriculum? What's the most important thing about assessment? And what's the most important thing when it comes to designing professional development? We then zoom in in the second half of the interview and look at advice for people at different stages of their career. And Tom answers the following. What's the most important thing for newly qualified teachers? What's the most important thing for heads of department? What's the most important thing for head teachers and principals to do? And finally, what's the most important thing to keep in mind when we're taking on a new role at a new school? For these questions, and many more that I ask in the episode, I was constantly impressed by the clarity of Tom's responses. Tom seems to have this ability to immediately get to the heart of what matters most in teaching and learning, and he does so using clear, precise, and understandable language. For this reason, I have a feeling that this is going to be one of the most popular episodes yet. And once again this month, I'm very happy to share that this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. Tom mentions a panoply of great educational books in this episode, many of which you can get your hands on through John Cat. There's Tom's Rosenshine's Principles in Action, which is a short and easily read a book that I constantly refer to when supporting teachers to hone their practice. There's also walkthroughs in which Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli team up to produce a collection of 50 essential teaching techniques, each communicated in the form of five clear illustrations and a concise accompanying explanation. Also mentioned in this episode and coming from the John Cat range is Putting Staff First, a blueprint for revitalizing our schools by John Tomset and John Utley. In addition to that, there's also Tom Bennett's new book, Running the Room, a teacher's guide to behavior. Tom Bennett is also a previous guest from the podcast, 
and Tom featured way back in ERRR episode 3. John Cat is an amazing educational publisher, and if you'd like 30% off any or all of these books or any other book from the John Cat range, simply use the special Education Research Reading Room discount code at checkout for that 30% off. That discount code is ERRR30. That's ERRR30, and I've linked to all four of those books that I've just mentioned within the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 45 with Tom Sherrington. Tom Sherrington, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Ollie. It's great to be on this very illustrious podcast. I'm delighted to join you. Pleasure's all mine, Tom. First question we ask people is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Tom, what is it that you do? What's your answer? If they're not in education, I, I tell people that I'm a teacher because that helps them kind of contextualize it. So, but I say I used to be a teacher and now I work supporting schools with professional development and I'm also an author of some books. So I usually I say it in that kind of order, but I like to get the author bit in there now more and more because I feel like that's kind of more true. Fantastic. Next question. What do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? It's a really good question because I think it's something to discuss, but I don't think it's a really sensible thing to say it's this because actually I think education has many purposes and I think we need to acknowledge that. So I suppose if I was to to distill it down, I'd say it's to prepare people for a kind of rich, fulfilling life of worthy purpose. And, and, you know, so there's a kind of moral purpose to it and fulfillment is part of that. And part of that is probably being able to, you know, earn a living. So you need to be sort of functioning citizens. I think it's, it's, there are broad purposes of education. And if we start saying it's to do with employment or it's just for personal fulfillment, I think we miss a bit. So I, I, I'm sorry, it's not the punchy answer. I, I like the idea of when I was a head teacher, I used to do assemblies about a life of worthy purpose. And I, think, and I think that's quite an important idea that we try to do good in the world. And in a way, education is to prepare children to do good in the world. That's lovely. I really like that. Could you tell us a little bit about your career to date? Okay, well, I started as a teacher of physics and maths, teaching in an A-level, in a high-level physics and maths pre-university a few years in the north of England. And then I moved down to London and I worked in a couple of comprehensive schools. One was a very big, large comprehensive in central London. And then the other one was a brand new school, which started with just year year seven and grew up. So I was deputy head of that school. And then I went to an international school in Indonesia in Jakarta for a few years with my family. And I worked as the head of a grammar school, which is a totally different type of school. And then a, a comprehensive school in central London, again, as a head for a couple of years. And, that, and then I stopped doing that about three years ago, three and a half years ago, and started supporting schools as a consultant and started writing books and things. So that's, that's the kind of spread. So I started really in 1986, I started my teacher training. So that's how long I've been in the, in the game. Lots of experience there. Is, there. is there something that you're particularly enjoying about your new roles, kind of consulting and slash author? And is there something you're really missing about not being in schools? I really love working with teachers. For me, it's sort of personally and intellectually massively rewarding to go into a school and help teachers and leaders with this really great process of how do we all improve our practice using ideas from research, but to then enact that in complex rooms with different children, different students. And I, and I, I just find that endlessly fascinating. And I, I love sort of recreating that and revisiting that in lots of different contexts because there are lots of similarities and lots of differences. So I really enjoy meeting loads of different teachers and watching hundreds of lessons 
and learning a lot from that. And I just love the passion that teachers have got for this whole enterprise. And I always meet these fantastic sort of senior leaders who are not the head teacher, but someone in their team who is responsible for this. And I always think they're the greatest people. They're so enthusiastic about it. And I get a, a big thrill out of that. And I love being the person who gets to share ideas. Like, you know, you've never heard of Graham Nuttall. Brilliant. Let me get, let me tell you about him. You know, that kind of thing. I love those moments when I meet people who have not heard of something that I get to then share. What do I miss? Well, every time I, what, every time I go into school, I have this pang of like, oh, wow, I've, I miss this feeling of being part of this team. You know, I, I really do miss that. This is our mission, you know. So it's almost the opposite. So I, I love the spread and the range, but there's also something you miss about that focus, that dedication to a team of people that you're kind of building and that spirit that a staff team have, which I, I don't have that anymore. And I really, I do really miss that at times, especially starts and ends of terms, you know, that sort of thing. You think there's something really special about a, a staff body and the way that they kind of support each other, which I miss immensely. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, this is a bit of a special interview, Tom. Usually we take an author, I read one or two of their pieces or books or something like that, and we really hone in on that. But I've been following your blog for a good number of years now, and something that's really struck me is kind of the perspective that you have on a school. You've written about almost every issue I can probably think about to do with schools from leadership, change management, behavior management pedagogy and instructional models and things like that. And so I really wanted to honor that experience and kind of your breadth today with an interesting theme to today's interview, and that is the most important thing. And this theme has actually come from a book by Howard Marks on investing, where he says, you know, the most important thing. And the funny thing about the book and the kind of tongue-in-cheek title of it relates to the fact that, well, there is no one important thing in investing. There's actually a whole heap of important things that are important in different ways and at different times and things like that. So I'm really excited to bring to you a real range and a real diversity of questions today and draw on your vast experience to talk about the most important thing or some of the most important things in a range of scenarios. So in terms of starting off, you were just talking then about, you know, being in a school, having a mission, shared purpose, all pulling in the same direction. I was wondering if you could start us off with helping us understand what's the most important thing for a school who's trying to work out where to start. So you've now had an experience with many different schools working with them. And when you go in and you try to help a school turn around or set some priorities, what do you find is often the most important thing? Well, it's, I, I often find that from that perspective, when I'm going in to help the school, I always think, I mean, I always ask people, you know, what about the, the range of the staff because I actually think you know whatever you're doing whether it's curriculum or behavior management or teacher learning it's it's the, the people who do all of that are the teachers and I, I I think the most important thing is to get a sense of who who are we dealing with you know are we dealing with a bunch of very experienced professionals who are who just need to kind of top up their background knowledge or are we talking about quite a variety of range of experience and quality even and because that sh shifts the agenda quite a lot from one, one direction or the other and for leaders to know their their teams really well you know what kind of parameters are there around that so how well do we know teachers issues are there common issues because you can't run go into a whole professional development process assuming everyone needs the same thing or conversely assuming they all need different things because that can be a mistake as well so i think that's the place to start who who are the teachers of course we have to talk about the students I always think if it, that's where I would start, you know, so because then we know who we're dealing with. Then we can look at the, the students and say, okay, so where are the gaps in learning? What things, the tip, where, where are we at in terms of profile of outcomes? Because then we match those two things together, you know, and 
Of course, there are deficits and strength in the staff body and in the student outcomes typically. And then we try to sort of deal with that. So it's kind of knowing the territory for quality issues, strengths, where to improve. That's part of it. I mean, you could also then sort of get into vision and values and all those sorts of things. But I, I feel like, if I'm absolutely honest, I feel like that's something I would explore a bit further down the line. That's a, such an insightful answer, Tom. And it's very much like, you know, that David Azubel quote. I can't remember it exactly, but, you know, the most important thing is identify what the learner knows and start from there, you know, build, build on that. And so you were taking that from the learner context to actually running a school and working out how to deal with the staff and the, the resources and kind of the strengths that you already have there. I, I guess a follow-up question there would be, when you do go into a school and you find that perhaps the background knowledge of the teachers is particularly low, maybe their affect and their attitude is, you know, a little bit burnt out or a bit low. What are some of the things or things that you recommend in that kind of a context? I think like, uh, like with students, you need to build confidence. So I, I think that you, you start thinking, okay, well, if we, if we can start to, to make people feel good about something that they're doing well, if, that, if that's the case, I, I think a really strong sort of common, let's all do this together kind of approach is important and blend that kind of whole school feeling of we're on a mission and with you know the individualized aspect of that but i do think where, where there's a kind of a lower sort of ebb of lower sort of status in terms of people's feeling that they're doing things well or there's a lot of quality issues you kind of need to be a bit tighter you know to pull people in and say okay guys here are a couple of things which we think will make a difference let's all try this and then it, you, you feel like you're all in it together and i think that's really really useful as well as telling that people like some of you might be doing these things well already, but because we're all in it together, we're all going to do it because that helps us move everybody forward. And, and that, that's the kind of spirit of it. You need to get the spirit of it right, because if people feel they're being told to do stuff that they don't need, they tend not to do them anyway. But I do find that then and also to keep it quite limited to the number of things where, where people are low in confidence or struggling, you can overwhelm people very, very rapidly with too many things like you, they might need to do many things, but actually almost a counterintuitive like okay well we can't actually address all those things at once we have to start something that they can get better it could be a behavior management thing like before we start getting too bogged down into you know what does sweller say about cognitive load theory let's just get the kids listening when we're talking <laughs> that could be the thing like let's just really be sharp about something which will make a big impact let's get everyone doing this listening and if the teachers aren't able to get like that control and that order the rest doesn't work so you do need to know the school the territory the you know where, where we're at and that's that's the, that's where those early conversations in terms of helping schools make sure that visions and values aren't just a poster on the wall but actually something that's alive and breathing within the school community what what advice do you have for schools and school leaders on that front i think this is why i, I don't start there because i often find that there is a bit of wallpaper aspect about this like you know we, we could all sit down and write our poster <laughs> most schools have the same vision and values really except they express them in different words you know because they are similar that's what i find going from school to school you don't very occasionally there are outlier schools where you think oh gosh actually the philosophy here is quite different that's interesting and it sticks out but usually you know they they you know there's a there's a pretty standard thing about wanting kids to be knowledgeable confident ethically minded kind you know all those sorts of things i think the thing is to just for them to be enacted all the time and to, to have sort of daily reminders, you know, and I and I, one of the one of the head teachers that I um, respect massively, who is not a big sort of Twitter person, and he's kind of not as well known as I think he deserves to be, is a guy called uh, Jamie Brownhill, who's a, who's a head teacher in Islington, and you know he, he he used to take he used to say to me, well, who takes all your assemblies? And I would say, oh, it's all the heads of year. And he said, well, why is it them? You know, why isn't it you? 
because how do you know they're giving the message that needs to be given? And he said, you know, he's transformed his school over, over several years by repeatedly giving the message to the students, like, this is what we are. This is what we believe in. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Like re regular reinforcement. It's like, a, it's not on the wall. It's said it's, it's reinforced day after day after day after day. This is how we behave. This is good. This is not good. This is how hard you need to work. And it's like the students can almost not buy into it because it's sort of like it's reinforced in the in the fabric of the school all the time. So I, for me, I thought, well, that's so interesting. Like it's that's how you do it. You you don't sit in a room, writing out your vision statement and being all proud of it. You go out there and you kind of preach it, and you you you're on the corridor with it. You're in assembly hall with it, and the teachers are hearing it coming from the leadership. And then they go and say those things too. And it's, I, I think that's the kind of way to do it. It's, it's not, not everyone can do that as well as others, but that to me is the ideal, that feeling of it. And I've been to lots of schools where that is palpable. You know, you don't need to ask them what the vision and values are on a bit of paper because you feel it when you, when you hear them talk to the kids. Yeah, that's really, that's super powerful, Tom. One other thing that comes to mind on this front is I've been having a similar conversation about visions and values and help them come alive with my co-founder for Dendro at the moment. I know you've probably saw me mention Dendro in the book. Um, it's a learning software that I'm helping to develop. But we've just brought a third person on the team and we've got a great thing going, George and I, and we're saying, how can we bring someone, someone on and make sure that the culture and the values that we've kind of built with just two people continues to live on and continue to exist and even be strengthened. And we, so we've actually talked a lot about this. And one other thing into, as well as just talking about it and, you know, preaching the message constantly, George actually made the great observation that identifying when people do it, like you said, then, you know, saying brilliant, but actually identifying when students are doing it and bringing those stories up. And often startups and schools and organizations develop these kinds of stories. They're like internal legends about this time that this student did this one thing and that was a fantastic embodiment of the school's values and people start to and this is relates to you know Dan Williams Dan Willingham's work in his book where he talks about the power of stories you get those stories that embody the school culture vision and values and they get told over and over and again and that's a re another really powerful way to engage it have you seen that happen as well i have and i i think you know, that that kind of thing of reinforcing things when they've happened is, is really really important this is what we believe in these are the things that we value they have to be real so it's like for example you know so i can say curriculum design terms you know you really the value you give something is embodied in in the quality of what's done and how much time you give it that kind of thing you can't really say you believe in something if if actually in reality it's not there or you it hardly ever happens so i do i do think though i have to just to sort of make this slightly different i have seen it where it's slightly false where or problematic where people say stuff all the time about what they believe but it's kind of slightly hubristic like we're fantastic you know this is a brilliant school and you're thinking well it's not though is it i mean it's it, it's a school on a mission it's a school that wants to be brilliant it's a school with a load of problems and just understanding they're telling everybody how good it is it's actually not it's just a lie it's, it's sort of help it's, it's a mask and it stops us being honest because it means you're creating a culture where you, you can't really go against that. Like, you, how does anyone say, you know, hello, I don't think it's that great over here, because it's almost like you're against the mission. It almost becomes forbidden. And I've come across that quite a few times. So I do think the kind of the projection of the story needs to be true. And if it, when it's not, then you're really in trouble. Now, just then you mentioned the importance of curriculum and how curriculum's a kind of representation of what the school values. So that's a great segue into the next point. Curricula immensely important with schools. So when you're helping a school to design their curricula, 
what's the most important thing? Okay, well, I, I always get, start with the idea that you need to know what your own curriculum is and start to develop a set of values around specifics around curriculum by looking at what's there and what you celebrate. So I do, whenever I do a training on this and I, when I'm working in the school, we say, well, let's have a look at your curriculum as it is. What are the things in there that you think are fantastic, that you would keep forever, that you, that this, you are celebrating, that you take photographs of, that you, that you, you know, amplify? Because those, that's telling you something about what you believe in. And, and I think that's really interesting. So, you know, I, I often share stories about, you know, things that we celebrate at some of my previous schools, like some of the, you know, the student-led curriculum work, as well as the sort of hardcore academic rigor aspects. Um, so it's sort of blended of things. So, you know, if you think, well, I, that's important to me and that's important to me and that's important to me, then you start thinking, okay, so this is what kind of school you are then. And then... Second stage is, well, what else? Have you looked at what else other people are doing? So if I'm, say, looking at, say, a history curriculum or an English curriculum, there's quite a lot of choice. Uh, what other models have you looked at? Let's have a look at some others. And it's what I call the sofa theory of curriculum design, which is nobody sits down with a blank sheet of paper and designs their own sofa because <laughs> you wouldn't know where to begin. You go shopping is what you do. You go and look around and, and you walk into a sofa shop and you think, oh my God, I have taste in sofas. I didn't realize I had because I hate that sofa and I love that one. And who knew? Like, who knew? I have, I have preferences. And you start thinking, well, why do I prefer that one? I prefer it for these reasons. Oh, and there's another one. There's, there's a sofa I'd never even knew existed. Wow. I love that. That's way better than the one we've got. And that's what curriculum design ought to be a bit like, because it's all in the con in the actual material. Like a curriculum doesn't just have a sort of nebulous ethereal existence. It's the kind of the topics, the ideas, the actual constructs, the activities, the the knowledge. But so when you I encourage schools to first look at what they do now to see what they really value about it and then look at what other people are doing and compare them. And and then from that Say, right, so having done that, now can you say what you really think is important to you? Because often that process leads school leaders and curriculum leaders to, to realize they do things they didn't even know they did. They go, does that happen in our school? That happens to me every time. You ask the average head teacher what books their year eights are reading. They have no idea. And you think, oh, isn't that amazing? Because that is your school. So your kids come to school every day, every week, and that's their experience. That's what they're learning about in history. That's what book that they're reading in English. And you don't even know that. That is your school. And sometimes I think, well, that's up to the, the teachers. I trust them. You think, well, do you? I mean, I, I trust my teachers in some senses, but I want to know what they're doing. I mean, I'm interested. And if they're doing something, which I think, oh, gosh, occasionally they're doing something. I'm thinking, oh, is that really happening in my school? Oh, I'm not sure, sure if I'm happy about that. Most of the time you don't think that, but sometimes you do. So you think, well, is this. it's not just up to them it's, a, it's our school together so we need to share this so that's one of the things i often find happens is that people develop this much broader sense of the ownership of their own curriculum and it's not just up to individual teachers to decide there is a collective view of the school we are is the curriculum we offer so let's own it together a bit so that that's the process and then and then you can start talking about what to do next like what deficits we've got what we could change what we could add what we could strip out but I don't think you can go straight into that until you've had a set this sort of review process where you're looking around and really got to grips with what's going on in your school and kind of in similar. That's great. Now, there's a couple of themes that are coming up here that I'd like to dig into a little bit more. One is the idea that kind of the curriculum and the way you allocate your time is a representation of your values. And then you just also talked about the idea of the importance of head teachers, which, you know, in many other countries we'd call principals, the importance of them really knowing what's going on in their school at the classroom level. Bring those two ideas together. I wanted to know if you imagined a, a principal or a head teacher's time as a pie chart, 
And you imagine the, you know, good head teachers like Jamie Brownhill, for example, or other good head teachers. How do you imagine their time filling up a pie chart? And this is another way of asking what's the most important thing for a head teacher. But what would that pie chart look like for the majority of the successful head teachers that you work with? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. I'm going to say that it does depend on the context quite significantly. So in a, in a challenging school where, like, where behavior is a daily frontline issue, I do think they are part of that front line. I think they are they are present, they are visible, they are part of the system, and that's why they're successful. And when people find that hard to do, the school's less effective. So that, but where there are other other situations where the head teacher doesn't even remotely need to do that. It's just not it's not like they can if they like, but mainly they don't need to. I think head teachers I work with who are successful know what's going on in the school because they are busy seeing it in action. They're going around having they spend a portion of their week in lessons. And just to know what's happening. And a lot of the time they, they are working with their middle lead and senior leaders to kind of like push them on and, and motivate them and en- energize them to go and kind of do things in that sort of way. So it's, it's a bit hard to put into a pie chart, but I do think it's, it's that sense of knowing what are the levers you need to sort of use to, to act, act, enact change and, and make things happen. And, and the, the middle and senior leadership level is often the way that's where that happens. You can't do everything yourself. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the hero head teacher kind of model, but I do think you need to know what's happening. So you do need to see it. You need to be on the corridors. You need to be in lessons just so you're seeing your school in action and you're having real conversations about the actual school that, that is there, not the one you imagine in your head. And the amount of time you spend in your office or have the time luxury of doing that really depends on the context. I, I think in, in my last school, I felt pegged into my office way too much and I, because there was relentless pressure to meet parents and deal with issues and formal business things like you know exclusions and governance meetings and all this sort of stuff, which just pegs you back and probably had meet, wait, meet, too many meetings that were too long and not enough time out and about. So that was fading, I feel like. I, if I had my time again there, I would try to spin that around shorter meetings, more time in the school. So getting that right, I don't think it's easy, but I, I, th- I think it's you do need to sort of feel the balance and uh, teachers respect you a lot if they see you, if they know you're around, if, they, if you're visible, the kids see you, you need to, be, you need to sort of get that right. Fantastic. Now you talked about being, being pent in there, something that can pent teachers in. I don't know if you can use that as a verb like that, but something that can kind of restrict curricula and restrict the actions of teachers and students, but also can provide insight into these things if done correctly, is assessment. So that's the next thing I'm keen to ask you about. At the school level and right down to the classroom level, what's the most important thing when it comes to getting assessment right? I think that the the phrase I like to use around assessment is, and I promote, is authentic assessment. So in fact, there's one of the research ed uh, booklets that's just come out on assessment. I did a chapter on this in that. Sarah Janowski, who's, who's the editor, so she, she's the name on, on the front there. But my, I, I think mine's the last chapter in that. And, and I think the concept of authentic assessment is the most important idea. So that the, and that means the assessment, which is as close to the, the raw information as possible, is the, is the assessment which makes the most difference. So how do I know how, how my students are doing? That, you know, truly, how do, I, how do I know? So in maths, how do I know how my students are doing? Well, I, it's really straightforward. I set them some questions and see if they get them right. And then I can also ask them to explain whether they understand their thinking and that's assessment can you do it did you get it right can you explain why and that could be verbal but it can also be done through tests and questions which are designed well to, to yield that information i don't need to even i don't need to grade it i don't need to write that on a spreadsheet if i know that information is real i might record it just for my memory but that's important that to me is what assessment feels like it's telling me something about 
the learning that's going on for my students so then I can plan how to help them. And that's what it feels like. Whereas in English, you know, assessment isn't often like that. It's it's more quality driven. So how do I know how good a student's right, piece of writing is? Well, I need to know what the standard is for writing. And how do I know that? Well, I look at examples of it that represent that standard. And I compare that student's writing with the standard. And often that's by looking at other students' work and we get a sort of comparative judgment going on. And that's a quality model assessment where you're looking at how do I know what is good and how do I then communicate how to improve to a student? So can I now help that student do better work by getting them to understand the standard? So assessment yields information which helps the student move on. Then maths, where it's a difficulty model, if you're getting the questions right, here's some slightly more difficult questions and difficult questions are ones which fewer students can do easily so it's like you need to know the sorts of questions which are at the next level of difficulty push the student on whereas in something like writing it's okay so how can i deepen or mature or, or make more sophisticated my quality so within authentic assessment you've got this sort of two branches difficulty model and the quality model assessment and knowing some subjects need to use them both so if you teach french You've got some difficulty model things to do with sort of grammar structures, and you've got some quality model things to do with you know, expressive writing and quality of conversation. So knowing the type of assessments that yield information about those two types of things are, are key. And then keeping a record of that stuff at the level which is useful to you as a teacher. How do I know how my science students are doing? Well, I have some test results in my, on, my, on my mark book. That's how. And I keep track of that, and that helps me see kind of, I know that test was on this topic. That's quite specific. And then maybe I, I, it helps me plan the, the kind of how, which topics I need to kind of keep referring back to, to bring back in, weave back into the curriculum in a spiraled, interleaved way later because build more confidence and where other topics are kind of more, you know, pretty much secure and I don't need to worry too much about them. So assessment informs your planning of your curriculum overall as a class, but also within the individ with the individuals. And for that to be true, it needs to be very close to the, the, the detail of the knowledge and the information that they're dealing with, not morphed into some macro scale, you know, grades and stuff like that. So if I've got a, something which says B in my mark book for James, I need to know what that B is telling me. Uh, do I really know? Uh, if, and if it's just like, well, it's just, but if it's uh, seven out of 10 on a test on this, then I kind of, that might be a better way to record that information. So I, mean, I could go on and on about this, but I feel like sometimes teachers are drift too far away from this and they end up sort of, Thinking everything's about broad grade categories, especially happens in England, you know, where, where we exam grades dominate everyone's thinking all the time. I recall one of your blog posts and within it, you share an interesting anecdote about assessment that includes an English teacher speaking to a set of parents whose child got a B and they're arguing for an A. I was wondering if you wanted to, I know that's one of your favorite anecdotes. Do you, do you want to share that one as well? And, and what it embodies, what idea it embodies? Yeah. This, this is actually a geography teacher who was a, uh, who'd done an essay. Yeah. Yeah. And he, but what he said was, okay, so he'd given a student an, a, B, a B for an essay and the parents were arguing with him. Our parents even saying, well, I, I disagree. I, I think this essay is worth an A. And he said, well, I don't, I think it's a B. So they said, well, we think you're being unfair to my student. We, you know, you're, you're kind of denying them there. So he just said, okay, I'll tell you what. He took the essay from them. They had it in hand. He took it and he said, okay, I'll tell you what. He wrote A on the top and gave it back to them. He said, there you go. <laughs> and it was like, What's funny about that is that it was obviously a sort of ridiculous victory, you know, for the parents because they knew in that instant that it was a total farce. Like he hadn't changed his opinion of the of the work. He had just written A on the top and satisfied them. And everybody knew that's what had happened. And they realized in that moment that, oh my God, you know, we standards aren't just what it says on the on the on the letter. It's actually 
deeper than that. And a judgment of standards isn't the letter. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the kind of whole set of ideas. So anyway, that was, I thought that was great, you know, that, you know, in the, in the end, you know, giving people what they want is kind of shallow. It's, uh, it, it, you, have to, you have to allow the sort of variation. So I thought that was quite a nice idea that, yeah, that, that was a good exemplification of kind of how shallow grading can be. Mm. Now, you've talked then about assessment and the idea of authentic assessment. And if I were to pull out some of the threads from what you were saying there, I'd kind of, I'd, I might summarize it as authentic assessment is reflecting upon and really celebrating student learning, but also using that as a way to inform future teaching and how to use, how to move learning forwards. However, what we see in, in and around assessment in a lot of schools is a lot of detailed tracking spreadsheets that very, very quickly become out of date. A lot of comments that, you know, suck up huge amounts of teacher time and are potentially never even read by students or parents or, and you know, even worse, never acted upon by anyone. And, you know, one of the key ideas that Dylan William put, puts forth is teachers have to stop doing good things in order to do even better things. You know, so even if assessment is going okay, we still need to, there's still some things we need to stop to make room for better things. So, and you, one of my favorite blog posts of yours is 10 low impact activities to do less of or stop altogether. I just think this is a great thing that you wrote on. I thought you did a great piece with it. So I wanted to ask in terms of stopping doing things, what's the most important thing that you think schools should stop doing in order to make time to do even better things? <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's funny that blog post, so it got, it got a lot of hits when I first wrote this, but I, I actually think, because we've just been talking about assessment, that they should stop doing assessment, which serves the kind of the central tracking machine that does not help the teacher help the class move forward. So anything which the teacher doesn't need for themselves, they should stop doing. Because it, why, why would you do that? And, and so for some schools, it's sort of you know, half-termly data drops where they have to generate a piece of assessment information for every student. In some cases, it's tracking endless sort of statement banks about can do this, can do that, can do that. And it's like it's, it's to fulfill the needs of this tracking system, which is often unwieldy and unsustainable. Stop doing that. It doesn't help you. You don't need that. So what's the leanest amount of data information the teacher needs to keep? That's what you should have because that's what they need. Everything else is spurious and time-consuming, including things like one of, one, of, one of the things I think is a bit of a, you know, nice to have, but massively, massively time consuming relative to what difference it makes is subject comments on annual reports. The amount of time teachers take typing in, uh, you know, James has had a good year. You know, he's a pleasure to teach. He sometimes, you know, needs to be, you know, attend to, you know, more, you know, some, something to do with, you know, the way he sets out his equations or he could add more detail to his essays. So like absolute sort of waffly superficial garbage <laughs> like that, you know, good luck for the future. and and. That has to be then, that has to be proofread, you know, half the time the word practice is spelt wrong. The pronoun's wrong because it's copy pasted from a girl's report. Yeah. Proofreading, gender stuff takes hours. All for what? Also that the school can feel, oh, look at our lovely, you know, preen and say, oh, look at our lovely reports. It's a, it's a colossal amount of time. And, and what difference does it make to the student? You know, almost none. I mean, no student learns more because of what is said in that. I used to have this teacher who, I won't name him, but he was a lovely man and very cheeky and maverick, but also brilliant. One year when I was the head teacher, he wrote a report comment, which was exactly the same for every single student and copied it in. And people were complaining about this uh, in the school. And I said, well, let's have a look at the comment. And I, he said to me, you tell me that, that comment doesn't apply to that student and I'll change it. <laughs> I read, and it just did. It was so clever. It just it said, you know, basically focus on the things that they could do to improve. And it was the same for everybody. It was just felt 
And he said, well, why is that not appropriate then? If, it's, if it applies to everyone, why can't I use it? I didn't really have a good argument for, for that. So I, I sort of thought, well, why, what are we doing then? It's sort of advice to students doesn't really come from this sort of report. So I, I think that's the thing. Maybe one person in the school writes a report on the child and everything else is done through sort of data codes. And you have parents even, you have contact and that kind of stuff. But it's just the time. It's not like reports themselves aren't, don't have some value. It's just the amount of time it takes to produce them is simply unacceptable given all the other things that teachers could be doing and the workload they already have. That's, that's what I think. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, at least the one other interesting question, which is who's the person who's best placed to write that single report or that single comment on the students? And to me, the most important person to write that reflection about the learning is actually the student themselves and potentially in reflection with or supported in that reflection by you know someone who's allocated some time to have a one-on-one conversation with them or take them through a process to really reflect upon their own learning goals and how they've progressed in relation to them have you seen any schools do that i tell you one one system i have i haven't seen it but i know about it is actually in my wife's school she's a head of a school a deputy head of a school in london and they, they only do it for year seven so you can say well could they explore expand that but for the first years they instead of parents evening and reports one person sees three kids and they they have a 20 minute 20 or, or they see five, maybe five and, and and the student comes with a sort of powerpoint presentation on a laptop which is about their learning so far this year and they talk about it with the parents and the tutor uh, or whoever it is doing the session. And so it's a rounded conversation about what they've enjoyed, where they're struggling, some of the work they've done, so they look at it, and it's a rounded conversation. And they think that's fantastic. And it sets them up uh, for the rest of the school because they do it at the beginning. And that's it, that, I think that's really, really interesting. So it's, it's, it's personal, it's got material in front of them, and it's led by the student. Now, can you, does that replace, I'd say that's probably a far more useful experience, but, but, but it's only with one person because you couldn't do that with 10 teachers. Now, I've been to parents' evening as a parent myself many times for my short five minutes. And to be honest, I do, I do think that's useful. I'm a, I've, I've found it massively sort of profound in some ways with some of the seeing my son with, and my daughter with their teachers having this sort of relationship, this rapport that's vivid between, the, between them. For, and I love that. I think, wow, amazing. This teacher knows my kids so well. And I do think that is valuable, way more useful than any report I've ever read. That's great. Now, on that, Tom, and on that Maverick teacher, there's probably several thousand teachers listening to this podcast and going, what's the sentence or a couple of sentences I can write on a report and copy-paste across every report that actually applies to every kid? Can you remember this sentence or these sentences? Well, it was to do, he was an English teacher, so uh, it, it was to do with how they had to sort of self-check their essays by, you know, applying certain criteria, make sure they've done this, this, and this, extend their reading by you know, exploring this text, this text, and this, this text, and ahead of any assessment, make sure that they had undergone this sort of, you know, this sort of self-improvement process so that they got, got more fluent with certain things. It's like just really good study advice, essentially. And, and you think, yeah, everyone needs that really excellent study advice because it was quite specific to that course. It wasn't just waffle. It was like, read this actual book, do these actual tasks. And it was just advice. It was helpful. So it was helpful to everybody. And it didn't dwell on what they had done well so far, because that was implicit in the grades and stuff. Uh, and it, he, he says, I'm like, taking account of your performance so far, filling your knowledge gaps using blah, blah, blah. That, that's the thing. You know, the, well, that's kind of what you're saying to everybody else. It's just a, it's a similar, similar. And, and sometimes people's personalized reports aren't even that useful. So I conceded. I just said, you know, we're never going to win on this one. It's what's the point? He's won the argument. Let's face it. 
That's great. Any feedback from parents? Did anyone have twins and they noticed that it was the same comment or did anyone come in and say, gee, we really appreciate this quality of comment or anything like that? No one complained. Definitely not. No, no one complained at all. No. So it, it was a winner. It's a winning formula. And he's probably using it to this day. Good on yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One of the next things I wanted to talk about, you know, once we've got these things in place, once we've worked out better ways to assess, establish a good curriculum and things like that, we need a way to kind of lay that out, spread it out, disseminate it throughout the school. So this brings us to CPD. So when it comes to continuing professional development and setting up structures within your school that truly help teachers to improve, what's the most important thing? Wow. Okay. I think the most important thing is to have an overall structure, and this sounds, this sounds a bit sort of macro, but an overall structure for the system so you know where all the bits fall. And it's not just sort of done piecemeal. So that there's a rhythm to it so that all the ideas are sustained and part of a framework. So we, we don't just start our CPD by saying, what are we going to do in the next CPD session? That would be odd. You always start by saying, what's our plan for CPD overall? So then what you have then is, and then within that you say, so what are the common inputs that everybody needs? So, and what, how do we deliver those? And then how do we sustain that individual development? So you need to then have a, a process for that. And then you look at that. And the process for that could be, there are different options here, triads, you know, three people working closely together throughout the year meeting regularly. It could be subject teams. The fact the school I was at yesterday, they had this quite nice thing, whole staff input at the beginning and subject teams meeting to discuss how those ideas work in maths, in science, in English. And then within those, everyone was paired so that they sustain a pair peer review process very intensively. So that was great. So you've got these layers of whole staff, whole school, department, and individual in pairs to sustain the reflection and review. So that that's that's is the most important thing, is to have some structure like that, which everyone knows what is going to happen. So they're planning mentally to improve over time. If your mindset is, when I, when I hear the word CPD, I'm just thinking it's a session in the hall with whoever is appointed to be the speaker. And that's what it feels to me. It's an absolute disaster. That, that, that shouldn't be what CPD means to you. It should mean a process which I'm part of all the time. And until we get, until we get that right, the detail of how that's done and what is said and done doesn't really matter because you know it's just going to, whatever you launch at the start won't, won't embed. That is the most important thing, I think. That's great. Well, there's a definite most important thing we've got there. And as actually, as you were explaining that, I thought, well, it sounds like what you're describing is a curriculum for the professional development. So maybe we can think of CPD as not standing for what it already stands for, but actually standing for curriculum of professional development. And that's that most important thing, set that out at the start of the year and, and, and keep it going throughout. Yeah, definitely. In fact, it's a, it's a blog I've sort of drafted. It's probably going to be the one of the next ones I do before the start of the year is about this whole issue. Because one of my feelings is that the, the, if you list, which I have done, sort of list the range of things that teachers are supposed to learn on an ongoing basis, it's absolutely enormous. And, and some of them are very important sort of uh, mandatory things like, you know, safeguarding children and how to you know keep data safe and health and safety where you've got practical subjects. These, these things really matter. You know, kids get hurt if you don't undo these things well. But at the same time, you know, so those take time to do, but you also then have got curriculum, assessment, teaching and learning, behavior management, blah, 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 so many things. How do you get better at it you know, on, on all of those fronts? Well, one of the most obvious things is that you need time to do it. I, I think it's really one of the things I would, I think if we sort of built teaching ground up and money was no object or certainly was more generous, you would lock in teacher development time 
So it was much more, much more of it and more protected. So it was a given that when I become a teacher, I have my lessons, but I also have my professional learning time. And it's really part and parcel of the job week in, week out. And, and I do think schools who've gone a long way to try to create that are, are really doing well. They, they, they find the time and they make it happen. I know schools where they have a minimum of one hour training per week, and they'd call it that CPD training, not meeting time, just training every single week and plus whole days as well. And if you add up the whole days plus those times, it feels like a, a decent amount of time. And I know other schools where they have a couple of hours every half term, if they're lucky, <laughs> that's it. And it's the opposite end, like it feels like barely anything. So that, that, yeah, and then the curriculum then is having, having a shared language and framework. This is kind of where I'm working and I don't want to sort of go into sort of sales pitch mode, but this is kind of where I feel like I'm working at the moment is trying to produce stuff which helps schools have a shared framework for the discussions. Because if we don't know what we're all talking about, it can be very fragmented. So knowing what we mean by certain curriculum ideas, certain assessment ideas, and sourcing the expertise to deliver that input where teachers don't can't generate it themselves. I think it's a big agenda for schools. Now, who is the person who knows about this that can really push us on? And if it's one of our own teachers, that's the best situation. But if it needs to be someone outside or just watching a video or whatever, then we need to be sure that we're getting that level of expertise into the school if it's not already there. That's great. I'm curious because, I mean, I'm lucky enough to now be in the position where I'm getting schools and people contacting me and asking to run sessions for them as you've been doing for a long time and something I've been a little bit torn about is you know with the knowledge of the importance of that continuing professional development and that rhythm and that structure I guess I'm worried that in many cases if I go and deliver uh, you know one hour talk two hour talk or session to a group of teachers without that being built into a structure it's you know it's not going to go anywhere I mean you, you mentioned Graham Nuttall before one of my favorite Graham Nuttall quotes is something along the lines of, there is nothing so ephemeral as a talk given to busy professionals, right? So I was, I was wondering how you take into account this most important thing in terms of CPD when you choose to work with the school and you select which jobs to take on. Okay, well, I, I, I think what I, do, what I tend to do is, my, my feeling is that I, I actually don't really select in advance in a sense. I don't, I, I would just work with anyone <laughs> because I feel like if they've asked me, it's because they feel they need it. And, um, but what I do is I try to influence them you know, from there when I'm, when I'm there with them and, and talk to them about the structures because I'm always talking about that long term. So right from the beginning, I'm, I'm saying one of my, one of my sort of early slides and nearly every talk is talking about changing habits uh, rather than sort of what I call speed camera behaviors. Like we're not interested in like, turning on the style so that when someone comes to watch, we do showcase lessons. We're, we're, that, that's irrelevant to the kids. I mean, it doesn't matter how many of them they do. That, 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 what matters is you teaching slightly more effectively for yourself every single day, every lesson for you, like be a better version of yourself. So you have to drive your own CPD because you're the one that's trying to work it out. So all these ideas I'm sharing with you today are for you to own and take on board to the extent which you feel you can or need to. But you need to be then, I talk about self-awareness. How, how aware are you of your own strengths? Because if you don't think you need to do something, you probably won't. And, and all sorts of issues, because it's about changing it, working on it, sustaining it. And I think those are the messages I gave. When I talk to leaders about structures, absolutely every time it's like, so when's the next meeting? How many times do we have? How, how long do we have between the session and the next session? How is feedback generated and given and received? All those sorts of details I've discussed with them. But I, I, I do feel, though, that, to be honest, there's no point in me saying, I mean, if, if a school literally just does have these sort of slightly old-fashioned ephemeral talk days, I feel like, well, that's what they have. 
what I can do in those days is try to focus on the issues which they can then at least think about themselves all the time. So you refer to, you, yeah, I try to share books and resources which they can access themselves. And again, mostly focusing on things which are very, very doable, just as a reflective teacher yourself. And, you know, things like, when we talk about this later, the Rosenshine principles, you know, that, the reason that whole thing came about was because teachers were saying to me, oh, I, I'm interested in all of this, but I've, you know, I feel like you've read all these books. I, how, how am I going to read all of those books? And I just say, well, start with this, you know, start reading this. It's short, take you about half an hour. And then, and it's also really simple and practical and useful. So that, you know, finding help, help tools, which help people sustain their professional thinking reflection. So there's a, there's a two, there are two things going on in nearly every school. One of them is the, the formal structure of the official CPD program that they are in, which is, you know, varying in quality. Now, some are just exceptionally good. Some are kind of ethically weak, you know, to be honest, like, oh God, a bed exists. But there's still always the individuals in that school driving their own learning themselves as individuals. And a lot of the time I find teachers who come to my training days, you know, they just buy a ticket to come or it's a research ed event, which is free, that they've bought the ticket on their own time. Often people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, how can I persuade my head of department to do this? Or how can I get my school to work, move in this direction? Because they, they, they are a lone sort of wolf or that's how they feel in their own school. I just think, I always say to them, it's so great that you're here because you could be the person that kind of, you know, it's the seed around which this, this whole thing grows in your school and how great is that that you're here on your own but that, that happens a lot you know and so I, I always gives me hope but i do think when you're doing training you're, you're you're sort of talking to the official people running it but also really you're talking to the individuals you're trying to sort of say come on doesn't matter what everyone else thinks you, you can do this yourself anyway and i, I do think that's healthy no that's great now, one form of CPD that you've put a lot of time into recently is your collaboration with Oliver Caviglioli, and you've got the walkthroughs themed clock there behind you in your study. And, you know, this is the idea of the walkthroughs, which has been an incredibly popular book that you've put together, summarizing a whole heap of really important ideas within educational research, as well as, you know, practical classroom applications. Did you want to tell us a little bit about the origins of the walkthrough series and what you're trying to achieve? with this approach? Okay, well, so the idea sort of originally came from Oliver Caviglioli, who, who he's had this idea around sort of dual-coded visual guides to things generally being a, a powerful thing and books and magazines having a visual structure which allows you to access ideas. And when, when he always refers to this, so I, so I wasn't aware of this, but he, he was particularly you know, taken by my series of blog posts called Pedagogy Postcards, which I did you know, about five years ago, more than that. And this is basically a series of 20 sort of nuggets of ideas for teaching, which I called pedagogy postcards, because I found these sort of cool postcard things to, to label them, but short. And it's, and it's proven to me, like through the blogs I've written and, and things like the Rosenshine booklet that I made, when, when something is short and punchy, a lot of people access it. And because teachers are busy. And so Oliver had this idea that if I can write about education in this short, still, distilled way, and then he's got this visual sense. Why don't we collaborate? Why don't we make something which sort of is useful for people, which has a kind of record, provides a kind of reference point for many aspects of professional development? So one of the one of the reference points is just a shared understanding of key concepts, some key research ideas, but then also into some practical strategies, some behaviors, some routines which maybe have names. And if we can do that, then 
in a, in a visual style which has a kind of helps people access then it'll be something which teachers will really really use and is there something like that at the moment in a book form no we, we felt there wasn't so there's things like teach like a champion which is really thorough and there are some other sort of tools out there which are visual guides but the this is the coming together. So then we had a great meeting in my house where we said, well, let's look at this. And, let's, and I was thinking, well, five steps. If everything's the same visually, that would be like, how many steps would it be? And we, we agreed on five steps for everything. And then we started making a list. Well, what could we include? And then we, it just went on past 50. We realized, oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> so we thought, well, well, let's not just make a book. It, let's make it into a pro process. Let's do book one, and then we'll do book two and book three. And we'll, we'll give ourselves time to think of all the others. And then we, then we thought, okay, but when you've got the book, how do you do the training? If, I'm, if I've got this book in my school, then we started thinking, well, we can make PowerPoints and videos and resources to go with it. So this is the, the next sort of development that walkthroughs has now. We think of it as a development, professional development package. The book is a part of that. And it sort of, again, works on different levels. So again, yesterday at the school I was at, they had all got a copy of the book each for every member of staff, which I was absolutely thrilled about. But also, in, when I was going around to all of the little rooms where they, you know, you had five guys here, six teachers in that room, eight teachers in that room, they were all had the same PowerPoint slides, um, which were going through the same ideas together, so same language, and then discussing how to use those ideas in their subject. Brilliant. I thought this is perfect. This is how it's supposed to work. We're not telling you what to do. We're saying, here's some ideas. Use these to form your inform your discussions about what you need to improve in your own school and uh, that's what they were all doing so it's that's that was the idea so yesterday was like a sort of imperfect embodiment of how how we saw it working and hopefully sustained over time these ideas will percolate into teachers being more effective so is it designed to be kind of like an all-in-one do, do you have a particular type of school in mind who would you know, get the most benefit out of this walkthroughs approach? Because before you talked about, you know, it's really helpful if you can have in t teachers from internally running the professional development and, you know, when it's useful to bring things from outside, bring things from outside, but do that in a discerning way and adapt them to the local circumstances and things like that. So is, is, it, is it something that you have designed for schools who are, you know, maybe they've got a teacher who's passionate about running PD, but they want a bit of extra support or what's the kind of vision there? What we try to do is to make it flexible for different mo modes of training. So obviously, launching this during the whole lockdown has led a lot of, a lot of demand for online learning. And a lot of people learn is actually, this isn't just something which, something they've needed to do, but something they'd like to carry on doing, even when we, people go back. So we've started to make a lot more of it accessible. Like we've put all our stuff onto Google Drive and videos embedded and stuff so that you can just access it individually, as well as in the halls but I, to be honest originally we managed we imagined it being this uh, oliver and i can't go to all the schools we we're asked to go to and also it's better for ideas to be presented from people from inside so what we imagined it being is a toolkit for trainers that was the original thought like i want you know so and so from from a school to lead their own training in their own school with some resources to help them and the resources that help them would you know will have look will look good but have all the ideas set out so that was our original idea, that the, the, the slides and the notes for the, the presenter, they link to the books, but also they kind of do work more or less by themselves. And they just provide a, a framework for that trainer to go through with their staff. Now, they, that could be as a whole staff or it could be in small groups. And because they're online now, you know, like, like I saw yesterday, lots of groups can be using them simultaneously. And so that was the idea. But definitely our whole thing is you can't rely on people coming into your school the whole time. It's, it's, it's expensive. It's 
you know, clunky. You need to be flexible, nimble, and self-reliant to the greatest extent. But you need that kind of expert input in terms of the knowledge. And so that's what we're trying to provide. We're trying to say, look, well, here's a set of ideas. And two of the things that we, we, we celebrate, and Oliver's really good on these things, and he wrote the, the sections of this, is avoiding what we call uh, professional amnesia, or what we call it. I mean, these are ideas coined from elsewhere, but professional amnesia, which is, so let's stop forgetting all the good ideas. So if they're all written down in a book, then we're not going to forget these. They're going to be there reminding, reminding, reminding. And also, let's stop what is referred to as lethal mutation, which is that we all we take, we take a good idea, and by, by retelling it badly multiple times, it turns to something not what it was originally intended. So we have this idea that the book uh, forms a kind of hub, like the book and the resources are, this is, a, this is the central place to go to. But if you adapt it over to here to art and over here into grade eight maths and over here into key stage, you know, to, into primary school literacy lessons, that's fine. Do that. But don't keep, but keep coming back to the hub. Come back to the center to remind yourselves when we say this, this is what it is. And if you've changed it, okay, but don't, don't drift too far because then we'll stop meaning the same thing. It's amazing to me. This is one of the most interesting things I've I've learned over the last three years doing training in schools. It's just just how far you have to go, which is hugely far, like massive effort, lots of time, just to make sure a group of professional, well-meaning adults understand the same thing as each other when you're talking about a simple idea. Uh, and this happened yesterday. We were talking about you know that cold calling, which is a Doug Lamov teach like a champion questioning strategy. How how much time do we have to spend to make sure that we all agree what we mean by cold calling? It's not this. It's not that. What about this? Okay, well that that's because of this, and so how it would work is this. Yeah, and it's how much of the lesson do I have to do all the time? Is it forbidden to ever put your hand up in class? You know, whatever all the rules or all the issues around it. Deal with all the concerns, objections, worries, anxieties, blockages to the point where okay, we all get it. Cold calling is this. This is how it works. It's no big deal. It takes a lot of effort. And it, it's, that's what our goal is, to, to help facilitate those discussions. That's great. And I mean, it's wonderful to go into that level of detail and create that kind of space for that discussion, because so often we do, you know, talk about, refer to these ideas as if we all think they mean the same thing. But very often we all mean completely different things when we say the same, same, the same set of words. Um, so that's wonderful to, you know, provide that space. Yeah. So one of the examples of this is something which I've come across, which is, it's amazing how language can be heard, uh, you know, it, where you feel you've given it some meaning, but it hasn't been received in that way. To some extent, people hear what they want to hear. So sometimes I've got into trouble because I've said to people about, say, marking, you know, do less written marking, more whole class feedback, more. Uh, people have heard me saying, Tom said we don't have to do any marking. <laughs> so now, now I go into schools and whenever I'm talking about assessment and marking, I'm saying, I actually explicitly have to say, I am not saying never mark the books. I'm just saying when and when you are marking the books, make sure it's for this purpose and blah, blah, blah. But one of the others is in terms of questioning, I say something like the purpose of this questioning thing is to involve everybody in the process. So that's what they hear. Cold calling is good because it involves everybody. And what they, they sort of, they, then they've tuned out because their head's busy and not they, all they take away from the session is I'm supposed to involve everybody in the questioning. That's what they've heard. So you go and observe them a few weeks later. And what they're doing is that they're thinking, I'm going to make damn sure I involve everybody. So what, they, what they've done is they've set the class up in a, like a horseshoe and they're literally going around sort of in order to student one, student two, student three, student four. And the students who are at the end of the line can see the questions kind of coming around the circle to them. They know exactly when their question is coming. It's just a bizarre thing. And 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 you say, well, why have you done that? And they said, well, you know, you said this is you said, you know, make sure everyone's involved in the questioning. And I thought, oh my god, <laughs> not like this. <laughs> 
in all of the questions by hearing it by by thinking about all the questions the cold calling is supposed to have this rhythm of the question is asked and then the student selects who the teacher selects who to ask so it could be anybody that's the whole point that's how you involve them all anyway so it's like that so even when i've been in to do training i've i've cocked it up i've i've managed to leave people with the wrong idea and i've learned a lot about that uh, it's just so easy to do so we we need to attend to that as as trainers and as people in cpd like do we all agree do we have a shared understanding of this concept let's make sure that's true before we get into sort of judging quality of it and dealing with the real technical issues of how we enact that in changing our practice mm, that's great i guess that that highlights the um really the value of work examples and examples and non-examples to show show teachers maybe what you mean and also, when I was chatting to John Hollingsworth about explicit direct instruction, he said one of the biggest breakthroughs in their training was they realized, well, actually, to show the power of explicit direct instruction, we should deliver our training to teachers using explicit direct instruction. So maybe, maybe I'm not sure if you do this already, but maybe you can start cold calling our teachers in your, in your PD sessions, and that would help them give a sense of what it's like to kind of be on your, the edge of your seat and ready to respond to an unexpected question at any time. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I, 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 whenever I do a, a larger session with live with people like I was doing yesterday, I always act out all, you know, all of the strategies. So it's definitely really useful to do that. So I get people to think about a question. And if people have been on my training will know one of the ones I often use is getting people in pairs to come up with a good answer to why, why does the sun rise in the east? And I found this is just a great question because it's amazing to me, to be honest, as a science teacher, how, how badly people understand this thing. It happens every day, every day of your life. And people don't really know, people get into real, like, when they, they realize, okay, I think I kind of sort of know, but having to explain this idea of the sun rising, it doesn't really rise, it kind of appears on the horizon, and why is it the east horizon? And then this whole thing of, I've got this schema for this idea in my head, but how do I express that? And it's a brilliant way of showing, well, that's what a generative process feels like. It's producing knowledge, then evaluating how successful you are, finding out where your gaps are. And it, it, in doing that in a training session, you can include Pair, pair discussion, which is really useful. You can include cold calling because you select who's going to answer. Checking for understanding, so seeing if people understood each other's answers, and so many aspects of questioning using that. And very occasionally, some very smart teacher gives me like the best answer you've ever heard like, straight away, and you think, oh, okay, <laughs> kind of slightly ruined my uh, training session there. But no, no, but actually, you, you, what you then do is you say, that's amazing. That, that person was a fluent understanding of this idea. And then you do the check for understanding. So you, you go to another group and say, right, let's just check. Did you understand what he was saying? And then they, oh gosh. And that's, it's so interesting. That re reveals this whole nuttle thing of, you know, different students with different prior knowledge. Just because it's been said out loud doesn't mean the other children have understood it or heard it or, 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 or can, can reproduce it. So I love, I, love the, I love that in the training. And like you say, the counterexamples is really important. So doing things badly and showing why that doesn't work. And then say, so do you see why this is better? Because then that, that happened. Mm, that's great. I'm just um, thinking about your question. It's, it's funny because it's quite a deep question. Even if, even if the teacher can say, well, it's because, you know, the earth rotates anti-clockwise when viewed from the top, therefore we perceive the sun as rising from the east, then this, the question still stands, well, why does the earth rotate anti-clockwise when viewed from the top? And then, you know, you go deeper and deeper. So it's quite an interesting question in itself. Another question I had on walkthroughs, and this is the quick one before we move on to Rosenshine, which of the walkthroughs that you talked about so far, um, or sorry, which of the walkthroughs that you included in the book was the hardest to squeeze into five steps? Oh, wow. 
I could probably, I'd probably have to, to, to look that up and, and, and study that. One, I'd imagine one would stick out as like, oh, Oliver and I sat there for you know half an hour trying to get into five steps or something. There's not, not one like that? I think the hardest ones to capture were the ones which are abstract. So, and we discussed this at, at length. So, and in fact, we were quite pleased with some of the feedback we've had on this because we were slightly anxious that these were in some ways not proper walkthroughs. So the curriculum ones. So what does it mean to have a spiral, you know, a knowledge curriculum, coherent planning? and a knowledge-rich curriculum. They're not step-by-step, they're a set of ideas. And how do you represent curriculum visually? So Oliver was like, oh my gosh, how do I? Whereas the other ones are sort of, you know, teacher at a desk looking over a student, the behavioral ones, ones are about imagining the teacher physically moving in the space, standing at the board, asking a question. In a way, that's easier to visualize because you think, well, what do I do? I do this and then I go there and then I do this. And actually those those things flow pretty well. But when it's like, how do I think about a concept like the core and hinterland in curriculum? Well, I'm not standing anywhere. I'm just sort of sitting at home and it's conceptual. And so those are the hardest ones. They're a bit, and, and actually, I, to be honest, I think we're quite happy with how they turned out because we thought quite a lot about those, but um, those are definitely the hardest ones. Deliver co- Is that the one? Deliver core signpost hinterland? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some interesting diagrams going on there. That's great. So he's got these sort of crazy spirals and, and sort of like figures of people climbing over hills and things. And it's sort of, it's this idea of exploration, exploring the hinterland. And I think those are they're quite difficult. But the actual writing process in terms of the five steps is, 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 the, is really the, 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 where all the thinking goes. In fact, I've started writing volume two now. We're, we're, we're doing that now. And I've done about 15 of them. And the next 50. So we've already, the way it works is we, we think of the 50 first, so I know exactly what's in it. And then you start thinking, okay, well, how do I divide it into five steps? It's just the headings. And I've, I've, I've found that really interesting to play with, sort of just, how, okay, how do I, how do I, that's, that's where the real thinking is. What do I do first? Even as a behavior management one, like starting off a lesson, you know, can you do a five steps? What, how do I do a good start to a lesson? What do you do first? What do you always do that first? And then what do you do next and next and next? And it's sort of, it's just a really interesting discipline to get into that thing. Because if I can't think it through, then how do I get people to follow a pattern? So it's great, very fun to do. And actually then describing the step is easy. It's just thinking of the five is, is, is really about half the, half the effort in writing a book. Yeah. And a really great generative learning activity for yourself. I'm just thinking this could be a really interesting way to, to encourage teachers to share their own professional knowledge. You know, if you had a, some teachers at a school who were doing doing some cool practices that they'd developed themselves or that they'd taken from somewhere else to actually say, well, let's, as a school, create a walkthroughs book where we highlight and capture some of the great teaching practices that we have here already and share them. Could be a really interesting approach. Yeah, in fact, you know, one of the things I find interesting when I watch so many lessons is just how, how complicated the starts of lessons are. And you think it sounds so like, how can it be that? But you... We, because what you, what you really want is you want to have this moment when the teacher addresses the class that's already sat down and listening and says, okay, guys, hey, welcome to the lesson. And right today, we're going to be doing this. And sort of talks to them about, about the learning. Like, remember what we did last lesson? Let's think about that. What, what, we're, what we're going to try to get to today is this. And then check the students have understood that and have a discussion. But the problem is they also have to, well, first of all, the kids don't all arrive at one time, often because of physical structures in the school. So you've got a bit of the delayed entry. Then you've got, so you've got to manage the kids who've already arrived or something going on. And you've got, so what do those kids do when they first get in the room? And then, then you've got to take the register. And that's really important. I mean, registers matter, you know, for safeguarding and stuff. So I've got to take the register. But when do I do that? Do I do the register before I've done my big inspiring talk or afterwards? And often that, 
first five minutes it's it's just chaotic it's it feels unsatisfactory because it's like the teacher is just overloaded setting up their powerpoint and maybe they've just come into the room because they taught next door then they're in it's like it's hell and finally you get into like six or seven minutes in we're like oh phew right okay now we're all set but it does just take ages and i don't think that's i've seen some schools where it's all like boom, 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 boom. but that's kind of get to that point of slick arrival it takes you know de decoding that into steps is takes some doing people talk about michaela school in brent a lot because it's very famous but they, you know that's one example and it just comes to my mind because i was working with a french teacher who was struggling and i said well i, t I tell you what i know a french teacher who is amazing so i emailed the french teacher at michaela and i said look do you have any videos? Like, do you have a, she said, well, no, but I could make one for you if you like. And she just offered to record the first 10 minutes of a lesson, which she did. She sent it to me just privately. And I, and I shared it with this teacher and she just sort of, sort of cried. She literally welled up. She was just going, oh my God, that's like, that's the most, that's the best CPD I've ever, ever had. And she was like all emotional about it. She said, I've never seen anything like that. And those kids have spoken more French in the first five minutes than they do in my lesson for the whole hour. And it was just so impressive the way it was like, ba, 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 bum, 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 nice and positive, really friendly, really positive, loads of language, it's so orderly and organized. And she just thought, oh, geez, I'm just, so I've got to try this. And she, she took so much from that. It wasn't like overwhelming to the point she couldn't do it. She thought, no, well, I, therefore I can see what I can do now. And it was, it was really inspiring to her. So sometimes seeing what can be done and seeing how it's just a set of very specific things that are done helps enormously to sort of realize that you're faffing about i just need to do that first then this and then that and it will just work and it just does and, you know and, and i don't think it's too mechanical it's just it's just this about breaking down a process into something understandable fantastic now we've talked to, we've we've alluded to your rose and shine book a few times throughout this discussion thought so i thought it's a good time for us to turn to that and you know we've we've kind of zoomed we've started we started right at the macro we said you know if you're looking at a school chatting with a school they're starting out they're trying to work out where to start where's what's the most important thing and we've zoomed in through curriculum assessment cpd and we're, now we're right down in the classroom you might like to answer this question in relation to rosenstein or you may not but i'm wondering when it comes to the things that teachers do in the classroom what's the most important thing i think the most important thing is that student that teachers check for understanding if you want one thing because it's I said this before, but I'll say it, you know, again, it's, it's, I, I think it's quite easy to teach some children something, you know, and to be deluded or kind of like satisfied even with the fact that, well, some of the children are making it, so I'm kind of, I can't be too far out. Whereas actually the job of teaching is to reach into the corners so that every child in the class is learning. And that's the hard bit. It's the universality, all of them learning all of it and keeping with you. And in order to do that, you can't make assumptions about learning. You have to check it's happening. And that, that right from the beginning of understanding words, can a student use and say this word that I'm using? Can they all do that? Do they all know the answer to this, understand this math procedure? Do they all know and understand it? And do they all know the instructions for the task before they go off and get it wrong? Do they all know what the standards look like and what's expected of them? What would excellence look like if they've done a good job? Do they all understand that? So checking for understanding just almost filters everything. Do we all understand it? And yet, the language that often permeates lessons is not about that. It's about task completion. It's about, have you done it? Have you done it? Is it done? Is it finished? And task completion language is so predominant in teaching. It's, it's kind of, once, you, once you sort of think that, it, you just see it over and over again. But I, I went into a school, it was a school in Stoke uh, last year, where we talked about this. 
And we, we watched one lesson with this group of people, and then we talked a bit about it. And I was discussing, as you see how the language was all this. Uh, and, and they said, oh, gosh, yeah, so interesting. And then we went into about 10 other lessons, and it was exactly the same in all the others. Again, oh, my God, this is such a thing. Everyone is obsessed by finishing and neatness and how it looks rather than do you understand it? Can you explain it? Do you know it? Uh, it's a totally different focus. So yeah, so if you want one thing, and Rosenstein himself, now I, I stress that because I see it, but it's also what Rosenstein did. So one of my favorite things that someone pointed out to me was, there's a great paper, sort of, you can Google it, but it's also one of my blogs about Rosenstein is he wrote this paper kind of ahead of a, some symposium in the 80s. I think it's 1982, this typed, it's like it's written on a typewriter, this paper called Teaching Functions. Six teaching functions that are basically what typically good teachers typically seem to do. These are the six core functions at, at that point. And underlined is checks for understanding. The checking for understanding was the only one underlined in his paper. It's the key. It's the, it's the number one. And in that paper, he even says, like, how not to check for understanding is to say, have you understood? Have you understood? Have you understood? The sort of uh, rhetorical, uh, you know, it's just a, and so uh, that is, I'd be disappointed if I don't include that in the training because I, I, I do nearly every time. It's such an obvious thing to think about. What information am I getting when I ask a class, have you understood? None. <laughs> because, because they could be right or wrong about that. And you just normally get this sort of murmur or nodding of heads. And it basically just says to the kids that don't, don't engage in that question because you, the reason I've asked it, because I want you to say that you're fine so I can just move on. And it just doesn't deal with the reality. The reality is that some of you will have understood it more than others. Some of you won't have understood it at all. And you should be seeking that out because that's what teaching is about. You know, who's not sure? And also, this is really interesting. Like the, why does the sun rise in the East? It's not black and white. This is why people don't understand assessment whenever they say things like, why can't we have it criterion reference? Can explain why the sun rises in the East. Tick. You know, that's a nonsense, isn't it? Because it depends how well you can understand, how well you can explain it, what level of depth we require. So checking for understanding gives you depth and richness and alternatives. Okay, you explained it like that. You explained it like that. Well, I, with, yesterday, one of the teachers said something like, uh, as the earth rotates, the sun comes into view. Like that phrase, comes into view. I thought, isn't that great? What a great phrase. And I, another, you wouldn't necessarily have to use that phrase. It's an alternative way of viewing where someone say appears over the horizon. Those are entirely different words. Appears over the horizon versus comes into view it's just on that specific case like there you've got teaching material that's rich are those the same thing is that, are that two ways of describing the same phenomenon well yes there is if we look at it but that's how we form secure schema with people thinking about an idea so checking for understanding i'm not going to go on about it forever but it's it definitely for me the core idea in rosenstein's principles and in teaching generally i think right couldn't agree more now um adrian thompson on twitter asked you know is there, is there an important thing, or is it different, Rosenstein's principles in terms of early years? I think it is, because in early years, it's, remember, Rosenstein's principles are principles of instruction. I mean, very explicitly so. So what does that mean? It means when I've got knowledge I want to give the students that they then to sort of learn, and instruction has, you know, requires explanation, modeling, and checking for understanding, and then some practice. So where does that relate into early years? Well, it does in some cases. So but it's about, it, it depends what we mean by the content. So, and I've talked, discussed this with lots of teachers. So you let, if you go right from the beginning, let's just talk about modeling. Yeah, modeling all the time, how we speak, the words we use, how we behave, how we handle equipment, how we talk to each other, modeling, mo massive part of early years. So showing students what they're supposed to be able to do, 
checking for understanding totally you know do you understand you understand what i mean by a word by what i've asked you to do all those sorts of things questioning comes into it but and also things like scaffolding and practice are big rosenstrand principles so that that's a big part of 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 early years teaching in fact some of the times some of the things i use analogies in my training are are actual things they're doing like social things like like for example I don't know. I mean, they don't literally necessarily learn this at early years, but it's a type of thing like riding a bike, you know, scaffolding, stabilizers, and then you take the stabilizers off. So anything which is to do with physical manipulation has that kind of scaffolded version. And then a, right now, off you go and do it on your own. So guided practice and then independent practice. And that's happening all the time in early years. Let me show you how. Let me guide you a bit. Right now, go on off. Go and do it by yourself now. And that is a strong Rosenstein thing of moving from guided practice to independent practice. And I think that's absolutely core in in early years so you might have slightly less instructional teaching in terms of let me explain loads of stuff to you up front it's not that form of instruction it's more let me get you doing things and then i'm going to guide your practice more more sort of hands-on in a different way while they're doing this sort of play and 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 all the rest of it but of course it depends where the early years extends to you know reception class a lot of a lot of teachers are the kids are learning to sort of mark, make, and, and start the early letters and so on. So there's obviously everything to do with modeling and things to do with manipulatives and maths and making patterns and shapes and schema building around early f- foundations of maths are, are embedded in that as well. So, or, or, and then mo- what, or another thing you're modeling is a kind of uh, mindset, like, okay, you're, you're finding it hard at the moment, but let's try another strategy and maybe that will work better. Kind of a can-do attitude, a positive spirit around anything to do with learning, overcoming difficulties finding new ways around things, resolving conflicts. You're always modeling positivity and, and can do. And I, I think that's huge. So I, I do think it links, but you do need to, rather than saying, oh, instructional teaching is all about, you know, secondary teachers teaching physics. <laughs> it, it, can, it is, but it's not, but it's also can be interpreted. In fact, I'll, I'll say this now as a bit of a trailer for Tom Bennett's book coming out now called Running the Room. He's done a little rose and shine. How does that work for behavior? And it's, it's you think, oh my God, this could have just been written about behavior. It's perfect. I mean, a reminder, you know, they start off with, you know, daily review, weekly, every single aspect of Rosenstein's principles absolutely applies to behavior management. And I think so obvious when you see it written down. So therefore, definitely applies in early years, you know, model, you know, all of it. But I, I won't, you know, let, I'll let Tom's book speak for itself when, it, when you see it. But I think, yeah, so I, I do think though the connections are there to be made, even though you have to be clear that we're not saying it means foundation stage teachers are standing in front of their class sort of giving like, like mini talks the whole time like you imagine in a secondary classroom that's great that actually reminds me of something that i did in my first year of teaching i had a, a class that i particularly struggled with in terms of behavior management and things like that and i actually after we'd agreed on some class rules i actually put those class rules into our spaced repetition learning system so that i actually got them to revise the class rules interleaved with actually the other learning content of the class. So applying that, you know, weekly, daily, weekly, monthly reminders idea. And it made a huge difference. It helped to keep those ideas front of mind for them. So it's nice. It's it's great that Tom's link, linked that in the book as well. And it's also like one of the things you're doing early in the foundation stage is is, is getting kids to um, learn to speak and speak with confidence and use a vocabulary. So when you're doing checking for understanding, they're questioning and checking for understanding. It's getting kids to it's a way of getting them to talk like it's so what do you think we're going to do next or what will what what will happen next or what why has this happened they, they have to then tell you and they have to tell you using the vocabulary that, you, that they're learning it's it's all part and parcel and everything you know practice is a important thing to learn to be able to do and sustain a bit of effort 
they're practicing getting good at things. You know, you're, that, that might be more necessary later on, but early stage learning, practice definitely has, has a role. Totally. Now, Bryn Humberstone asks a really interesting question. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about Rosenstein's principles, and Rosenstein's principles would often be related to what you describe as mode A teaching. So maybe for listeners, you before you answer this question, you want to give us a little bit of a, a bit of a rundown of what's mode A versus mode B teaching. And then Bryn's question is, if Rosenstein is the best guide for effective mode A teaching, what do you think is the best guide for effective mode B teaching? Okay, so to be honest with you, I, I really am, I'm, I'm pleased and, and sometimes surprised by how, how sort of well this idea goes down with people, because I kind of just made it up in, in writing the book, The Learning Rainforest, because I felt like I was trying to organize my ideas around teaching. And I think, okay, so a lot of this stuff to do with Rosenstrand's principles and all the rest of it is instructional, but it's not all there is to teaching. So what, how do I, how do I, what do I call it? So I thought, well, mode A, mode B worked because it's, it's like this idea that your default mode for a lot of things is instructional because that's what teaching is often about. So mode B is just the opposite. It's almost like the opposite. And, and because of that, mode B teaching isn't really a thing. It's, it's a collection of nearly everything else that's not teacher-led instruction. So it's very diverse in its sense. It's, it's anything to do with students going off to, you know, to design their own experiments or to do a presentation or to work in a group or go off and, you know, and do lots of oracy-based work, all those sorts of things, where they are the ones initiating or coordinating, being independent. And of course, it depends on the age of the students. It depends on the subject, it depends on their confidence level. So mode B teaching has a sort of broad... Now, what's the best guide to it? Now, it, it feels a bit ludicrous for me to say this, but the only, the only book I know that explicitly deals with it as a thing is The Learning Rainforest, where I have a chapter called... It's chapter the last one, and it's uh, chapter nine. It's called Exploring the Possibilities. That's the chapter. Exploring the Possibilities is about is mode B teaching. So that's, that's what I've up with. And in it, there are 20 strategies or exploring the possibilities of the learning in the learning rainforest. And that's what mode B teaching is. So if you wanted to, a, a book, well, the only book I know where you're, you're going to get that absolutely explicitly covered is, is that. But there are other books which do have aspects of mode B teaching in. Now, one, one, of, one of my favorite books is a book um, by Howell Roberts, which is called Oops, a guide to sort of accidental learning. And, he, and he, his is, uh, he, he's a great character and a, a fantastic speaker about teaching often about creativity and writing and creating aura wonder in lessons and he he sort of he points out that you know m magical things don't just happen it's brilliant when they do when they when they do like when when w surprising things take place that like you capitalize on that in the classroom as a primary teacher especially but he says that you can't rely on that so you can create magical things by you now he does this brilliant training where he says he said he he says things like oh my god did everyone see that oh my god that you just see that elephant. It just walked past the window, <laughs> and he's like, and you're, and he's so convincing. You just think, did it? Oh my god! And everyone sort of wants to see it, and and he just says, like, see what's happened there. I, there's a, that's a moment, and now we've got like this moment, and we're going to write a story about it. And so that type of thing is non instructional. It's a uh, creating a bit of magic. So oops is a brilliant way of, and, and that's one of them. So it's that type of thing. So that, that's what I'll say. And, and um, I've got, there are other ones I'll mention later, but it's, 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 it's kind of horrible to, to mention my own book in that sentence. But I just think it's, I just don't know where else it's covered in that sort of listed way. Like here's a set of things you could look at. So that, but there is that, there is a place. I tell you, one, one of the things I think is misunderstood and misrepresented by a lot of more traditional, uh, you know, Rosenshine fan type teachers is 
flipped learning because it sort of sometimes gets lumped into the woolly, progressive, ineffective, waste of time type <laughs> basket by then. But I started teaching in, in a school where that was just how we did things all the time in quite a traditional way. And for me, flipped learning has just been an absolutely essential way to teach, certainly the high-level students, you know, secondary, higher secondary, essentially training them early on in every course to be in charge of their own course and to bring things to lessons systematically. So here's the book, here's the course materials, there it is. Like In other words, that's all you need. You know, go away and read. Why do we learn to read? So that we can learn. So here's a textbook. Read it. What does it say? What does it tell you? So now you've read it, do you understand it? Because And that's before you've explained anything. That's what textbooks are for and books are for. So giving kids stuff to read and then making them read them, then insisting they then interpret their own reading, and that can then lead to them writing notes. Then, okay, so let's record some of that. Let me train you how to make notes. What would you need to store from that in your notes? So let's train you to write notes. So within a sort of month or so, you've got students who can go away on their own, read and write notes, which is so efficient. Because I don't have to do that. I don't have to spend time in lessons presenting stuff as if they've never heard it before. They've already heard it because they read it in advance. And they're bringing questions, things I'm not sure about. Brilliant. Okay, we're, it just accelerates the whole process. Let's cut to the chase of the stuff you don't understand yet. And let me check you. And, and if you train students to write, to read and write notes, well, it just means you can spend more of your lesson time explaining, discussing. And the mechanics of note-taking in class are very slow and time-consuming. And often teachers spend way too long making fancy PowerPoints when the books are already there. And they should just be using that. So for me, flip learning, which I included in the mode B, because it's a, it's a different mode of teaching from instructional teaching, isn't key. Now, some teachers say to me, oh, it's lucky you taught in a grammar school. And I think, well, no, I did, but I didn't start teaching in a grammar school. Every single time I've ever taught an examination group, they have always done it that way. Uh, in every school I've ever worked in. It's, it, it's, uh, and they can. You just, and if you don't think they can, of course, then that's never going to happen. You just don't let them even learn. But if you make it part of how it's done, it, it, all kids can learn to do that. Some need more help than others. So those sorts of things, I think, are really important to, to, to feed in to the instructional mode. It's really not all about the teacher standing there telling them everything because it just sort of de-skills kids. If they can learn to read and understand what they've read if you make that part of how you teach. So this interview, Tom, is going to be about kind of the roles, well, the most important thing for people in different roles, like heads of department, NQTs, things like that. Before we go in there, I just wanted to ask one final question in this kind of second half, which has been about all about the operations of schools and classrooms and things like that. Your Rosenshine book has been incredibly popular. It's one of, well, it's probably in recent years, the best sold book that I've heard about in the education circles that I've come across. What do you think it was that made that book so popular? And how has that morphed into the inaction series? And what do you hope that the inaction series in general achieves? Well, I think that the main reason the book has sold well is because it's just a kind of timing thing. It's one of those sort of zeitgeist things around Rosenstein's principles themselves becoming accessible and people realizing that they existed at all. And although it's a free paper, so it's interesting to me, and sometimes I've struggled to even rationalize this myself, it, it's a, it feels like a total fluke to me that this happened and that I'm the person that wrote the book. I mean, it really is. So I, I, if I just sort of describe the sequence, so I was going into school saying, about talking about teaching, then seeing finding Rosenstein's principles, and that was freely online. You can buy, you know, download a copy. Everyone can have it, and then advocating that regularly, saying, 
And then I wrote a blog saying, why, do I, why is Rosenstein's Principles such a useful paper? So people read that. And then I was doing a talk, you know, research yet event. This is what Rosenstein's Principles is, is. This is what it's like. And this, this guy who was one of the publishers said to me, he told the talk and he said, this is in a US search ed. He said, in America, you know, teachers typically are not accessing research in the way that they might be in the UK from what he could see. So a, a short explainer of that paper, oddly, he said, you might not think that's odd, but that, that would really help. In other words, the paper is there, but people won't really read it because it's seen as a research paper. If you wrote a short explainer, a bit like the talk you've given, where you give more examples of how it's done, that might be really helpful. But just make it short. So, you know, he said, like, what? I said, how short? He said, well, about 8,000 words. I thought, like a little pamphlet. So, I, but that, it turned out to be 12,000 words. And then John Cat came in and said, well, why don't we publish that in, the, in England? And I just, and we was looking at it saying, well, pretty short. <laughs> went, well, if we, if we put the paper in, in, it's like a the useful for people that's there. And it's, and it's, Rosenstein's paper is free to publish in any format. That's how it was done. And it's, so we said, okay, well, we'll put it in. And then, and, and, and then we just thought, we'll see what happened. And, and actually, I just couldn't believe the, how well it sold. I just thought, my God, because what was happening for the first time, really, probably for a book about this, is that schools were buying a copy for every teacher. That's what was happening. It wasn't just they were buying one for their CPD library and saying, go away and read it. They were saying, no, this is, I can get this in everybody's hand. And unlike, weirdly, weirdly, you might think people, they could have just emailed everyone the PDF and said, like, everyone read this. People don't do that. It's just hard. People are too busy to open the PDF, read it online. It's just a, an odd thing to do. Whereas a book, here I have it in my hand, and we've got a meeting. We're going to open the book and discuss it. It's physical. I can read it on the train. Uh, I think that's what happened. So it, it, it was just the format allowed people to give it to everybody in their staff, and it started book so mushroomed in, in, as a publishing thing. I think the thing is, though, here's, here's the thing. The reason why it's useful is that Rosenstein's research was about trying to find what effective teachers typically do. So the reason why I think it's popular is because most teachers can see themselves in it. It's not some fad. It's not, it's not something too abstract. It's like, oh, yeah, it's very functional. Daily review. Yeah, I get that. Questions, of course. Practice and guided practice. That's, you know, guided and independent practice. That's interesting. How do I manage that? There are things I do, but then do I think about them in that way? And there are a couple of provocations in the like high success rate, which I go, oh, gosh, that's interesting. It's quite high, 80%. Do I manage that? So it's got a, pro, a prompt and probe aspect, but it's also got a kind of nice secure, like, yeah, okay, I'm familiar with what it means. And then it's backed up by the cognitive science. So it's got this feeling of being sensible, pretty much, pretty functional, common sense. And so this, so leading on to the inaction. So we called it Rosenstein's Principles in Action. And then we had this idea that, well, Rosenstein is just one of many papers. In fact, I'm always, it's one of the things I always, although I do talk about Rosenstein's Principles a fair bit, I talk about lots of other papers and lots of other people's ideas and there's lots, of, lots to share. But we had this idea that it would be good to do the inaction on cognitive load theory. And we just, I discussed that with the John Cat people. And then you were the obvious person to ask to do it because of your previous having spoken to John Sweller and some of the ways you've explained some of his his ideas, like worked examples and so on, on your blog. And so we asked you to do that. And then John Tomset, who some people know, head teacher in, in England, he, he, he's fascinated by this paper to do with cognitive apprenticeship. And he had this idea that he could get different subject teachers in his school to write about how cognitive apprenticeship works as a concept in their subjects. And, and, then, and, and then we said, well, that's another in action because it's based on this uh, one paper by, uh, by a group of, uh, of, of cognitive scientists. And then we start thinking, okay, hang on, this, this, this feels like a theme. 
So then we've launched the rest of it. So we do have coming up you know, over the next year, there will be one based on Shimomura's March paper in action. We've got Dylan Williams and uh, Siobhan uh, Leahy's um, five strategies for, cognitive, for, for formative assessment in action. So that's called like five uh, learning strategies in action and so on and so on. There's a whole different ones. We, we've got Fiorella and Maya, which is the first one to come out by Mark and Zoe Enser. They're in action. And, what, and we've got Ron Berger doing his ethic of excellence in action, including the Austin's Butterfly, that whole thing. And uh, all these people are aware of their book being written about. They're all, lot, half of them are writing the forward for it and stuff. So it's quite good. The actual researchers are really supportive of the papers being written by the teachers who are writing them. And that's what's great because all the books are written by teachers who you know, writing about how to do, use these things in their teaching. So I'm excited about the whole thing. I, I just have putting the people together to do it. And something which I don't, I don't think we've really announced officially yet, but normally, you know, like someone like me would like get royalty or something. Although I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting a royalty for these books, but we're giving like a 5% royalty to, to a researcher. So all the books will get a, will contribute to research ed as a movement. And that's partly to do with the fact that, you know, we are, as we were, huge amount of respect for what research it does and it's a non-profit shoestring organization and so we feel like these books kind of owe a kind of debt of gratitude to that kind of movement and so that's what we're, we're doing with with them that's awesome tom yeah i hadn't i hadn't heard that and i wasn't aware of that so i'm well i, I think i i think we've told everybody i mean i think we're going to stick it on the back of the books when when they come out like it'll be in the jacket and stuff but we've just that's what we've agreed to do yeah so tom's tom bennett is happy about that so that the, we we just we have, we're going to write a little blurb in the books about that, but yeah. So you heard it first here. That's great. Well, that's that's super exciting. I'm really glad that the book will will be contributing to Research Ed, which is a movement that you know I've I've learned so much from and been connected to so many wonderful people through over the years. And yeah, I also just wanted to say thank you for you know I was very surprised and pleased to get the email from John Cat in I think it was November or December last year for the offer to to try to put some words together around cognitive load theory. And I've really su- appreciated your support throughout the process to really improve the book as well. Oh, well, I, I do think it's a really good one. I, I actually think as, as there are some ideas that are associated with individuals, aren't there? And I, and I know that cognitive load theory isn't just down to John Sweller, but I think it's quite useful to, it's like a, these inaction books do a number of things. One of them is they sort of pay respects to kind of key figures who've produced ideas, but also it does help the ideas come alive in a way which, and actually, to be honest, cognitive load theory it's not that accessible as a, I mean, there's a fat book, which costs a ton of money, to, which, <laughs> and it's, it's difficult to actually find a, a, a succinct and, and accessible way for it to be discussed. And I think your, your book will be one of the only books there is where it's done in that short way. There is a chapter in David Didow and Nick Rose's book, Psychology, about cognitive load theory. So there are other places where it's dealt with. To have a, a short book ded- dedicated to it, I think it's going to be really, really helpful. Dear listeners, as per usual, this month, patrons will receive my summary of this month's episode, bringing together Tom's insights on the most important thing for the wide range of topics discussed in our conversation. But this episode, that's not all. All patrons will receive a special benefit this month, and it relates to my forthcoming book about which Tom has just been speaking. As I'm sure you've gathered, this is a book that I've been working incredibly hard on over the past many months. 
I've done my very best to communicate this complex concept of cognitive load theory in the most clear and practical terms possible, describing all of the major cognitive load effects and sketching out exactly how each of them can be applied right across the spectrum of school subjects, from maths to music, physics to physical education, and many more in between. I wrote this book under the close guidance of Professor John Sweller, the creator of Cognitive Load Theory, and John has generously read and provided feedback on every single word to ensure that the final book, as it stands, is both a practical guide for teachers and as clear a representation as possible without losing any of the true accuracy or nuance of the theory. I'm excited to announce that all those patrons who support the ERRR podcast with the average donation of $5 per month will receive a 100% discount on Cognitive Load Theory in action. That's right, all $5 patrons will get a free copy of my forthcoming book, with the only payment required being for postage. I'm actually personally buying these copies off John Cat as a gift for all $5 patrons to say thank you for your support so far, as your ongoing patronage really does help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on. That offer is for all supporters who donate the average $5 or more per month. And for all other patrons, they will receive a unique discount code for 50% off the cover price of Cognitive Load Theory in action. So if you've been thinking about supporting the ERRR podcast through Patreon for a while and you just haven't taken the plunges yet, now is a fantastic time to take that step. The cutoff date to access these Patreon deals is mid-October when the book will come out. So to sign up and get 50% or that 100% discount of Cognitive Load Theory in Action, go to patreon.com slash E-R-R-R. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show. Now we'll jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast with Tom Sherrington. All right, so we've been talking about the most important thing in terms of from the school to the, down to the classroom level. Now let's talk about the most important thing for different people in different roles. So for in the UK, you call them NQTs or newly qualified teachers. For teachers just starting out, what is the most important thing? <laughs> okay, it's like a lot of most important things. Is there more than one? I, I, I think I, I'm trying to imagine going into the class as an NQT myself and, and the, the most important thing. I think you need to have something that you feel secure with, that, you, that gives you a confidence so that, you, that you've got something which you know is, is like, so that you, you feel like you're not, there's lots of other things that are hard, like you're getting to know the students, learn to do behavior management. So what's the thing which gives you the confidence? And the thing you can plan in advance and be on the front foot with is the material, is the content, is the curriculum. So I think the most important thing is to give yourself the best chance of really getting on the front foot and ahead of things like behavior is to make sure that you know the material for the lessons that you're teaching, that you've got good resources, good questions and also you know where it's going so you you study it because you can do that in your own time and i think that is the most important thing when you're not sure of the material as well as wrestling with the behavior management aspect it's really really hard you just get overloaded and it's stressful so that's that's the first thing is to to have to make sure that you know the curriculum sort of in the medium term at least so that you you can see kind of a whole unit ahead and kind of where that fits into a wider scheme and so this lesson is and this, the series of lessons you're about to teach has got to achieve a certain thing. And you've got, you know, these questions and, and you've studied them. So whenever you see NQTs really struggling, I feel like it's because they are trying to do too many things at once. They're not sure what's coming next on their material. And they're also then blindsided by a behavior issue. And it's the, it's the fact they can't do both at once. That's, that, that's my advice. Control the things you can control. And the thing you can control is knowing the curriculum 
Of course, you get better at that and you get more experience with that, but it's definitely something you can read ahead of and become more confident in. That's great. What about heads of department, people who are maybe they're taking on a new role ahead of department or just, they've been in the role for, for a while? If people want to do a really good job. What's the most important thing? Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing with heads of department is to, is to make sure that you've made the transition uh, mentally, but also in your practice to, to realize that you're you're not responsible just for your own lessons. You're responsible for everybody else's lessons, it's just to some extent. And so the most important thing is to, to work out how you're going to engage with that uh, and to then get to know the teachers in your team. And of course, there's the curriculum and assessment and all the rest of it. But the, the, the thing that's the difficult thing to do is to realize you're now managing people. So previously, you might have been a teacher who's just thinking about your class and your curriculum. But now when you're a head of department, you're not just managing the curriculum, and uh, you're managing the people delivering the curriculum. And that is, that's the hardest shift to make, I think, for some people. It's to become the team leader, and you've got a personnel management aspect to that, motivating people. And then you've got to realize that not everyone in the team necessarily thinks exactly like you. They might not be able to do what you do, and they've got strengths and weaknesses. Some, some things you can harness, some things you need to change. So that's the most important thing, is to see yourself as a leader of people and, and find out and, and establish those relationships and team behaviors so that you, you create a kind of spirit as a team. Within that, I think, like we talked to us about CPD earlier, it's one of the most fascinating things I see when I go into schools is the team dynamics. You know, sometimes people come up with these sort of cliches about the, how certain subject teams always behave. But I, I don't see that, but I certainly see very strong team behaviors. And, and that can be sort of cynical, arms foldy, kind of, you know, yeah, we don't need to know this kind of stuff, attitudes, or it can be that kind of real enthusiastic, and I think recognizing that as a head of department, you really set the tone for the type of spirit of engagement that your team has got. And, it, and it's one of the key factors in, in, in helping teachers improve is to, for them to feel they're in a team where improvement is the agenda for all of us. And it's something we take really seriously. So that's, that's, that's the thing. It's like that sense of team leadership and then the personnel within that. And whenever you're talking about how are we doing, your, your, your immediate thought is, to the other lessons around you, not just yours. I find some teachers find it hard, quite hard to make, you know, initially that can be quite a big, you assume if I'm doing it in my teaching, everyone else's, but that, that's a, you know, something you can't assume. Good point. That's a, that's a really good mental shift to highlight. That ties into the next question. The next question is for principals and head teachers, what is the most important thing? But I'd also love to ask, what's the role of, you know, messages coming from the top person and percolating down, for example, empowering those heads of department to actually take on that oversight role and things like that. What's the most important role for principals in that? I, I think, I don't think that's, that's part of it. I, I'd say there are so many things to do as a principal. I think one of the most, I mean, there's lots of things to do with like vision and purpose and all of that, which we could, you know, we might talk about. But I do think in terms of this sort of more you know, practical aspect, I do think you need to recognize that the people who run the school, you know, you, uh, Ultimately, you'll get to a point where you, that you kind of no one knows if you're there or not because it's highly functioning. And the people that really run the school are the teachers and their leaders, and in, at, at that middle level, day in day out. And if those people aren't functioning well, thriving, enjoying life, feeling supported, everything else doesn't work. So I, I really think the most important thing as a principal is to, is to, in order to deliver on your vision and everything else, is to have processes which, and you think hard about them, so to create that team of people who can deliver what you want to deliver. It, I, I've worked with a lot of people, and I've done this myself, where I've had all the ideas, but because I haven't really worked out well enough how to get them into practice, they've just fallen flat. 
And sometimes it's to do with the people that you have and recognizing who they are. So one of the most important things for principal is to recognize that you can't swap, you can't, you can't substitute your team. That's like the very last resort. And that might happen over time. You have to work with the people that you have and they are your team. And it's like, so how do I get the best out of the people here? And sometimes that's a really hard thing to do because you think, I w- if only so-and-so was like this. Well, they're not. That is who they are. So, okay, so using the people that I've got, how do, how do, we, how do we get this to work and that to work? And recognizing that you're trying to get the best out of the people. So that then leads to the CPD, the culture and that, empowering people to develop, creating a spirit of continual professional improvement, incentivizing people to love that, to embrace that. I really think that. So investing in the staff, which comes to, you know, if I was going to make a recommendation like uh, my friend John Thompson and his, his friend Johnny Utley, he's just written this great book called Putting Staff First. They're both head teachers. That is the headline of their book, Putting Staff First, because that's the whole point. It's like, without that, you know, we could talk about, oh, it's all about the children. Well, of course it is in the end. But if I, if I haven't put my staff first and invested in them and made them feel great about their whole work, I can't do anything for the kids. So I do think that's, that's key. Kind of easier said than done in, in, in at this sort of lip service level. But what does it mean in practice? It means professional dialogue. You know, it means sort of professional review systems, like performance management systems, which are empowering to people not feeling like you're sort of beating them with a stick. And I, you, you, some people are comfortable with that, to be honest, as principals. I've seen some, what you might regard as effective head teachers who are quite comfortable with my way or the highway. That's, you know, it motivates in some way. <laughs> and when you see kind of that they create a school which is highly functioning and works well, and that's their spirit, you think, well, okay, blimey. I mean, I couldn't do that, but they have. So you, you can't, I don't I wanted to judge that approach too harshly because sometimes it does definitely work. But regardless, it's this idea that we've got to get teachers motivated to work and to, to, to stay and to be to feel that they belong. I do think that's the most important thing, which means things like involving them in decisions. Like we talked about assessment earlier. My favorite thing to do, and I think something I've done effectively as a head, was to get people to design assessment from the bottom up. You say to a team, what would assessment look like in languages? What would assessment look like in maths? What would assessment look like in, math, in, in science? And in English, well, you guys, you tell me, you tell me what you think you need, what tests, what, what assessment, what data, what marking policy, and show me what you think would work best for you. And then let's take a look at it. And then that becomes effectively the policy that it's like, because, and that they feel empowered by that process. Of course, if, you, if they've come with something that you think is terrible, you would say so. <laughs> but it starts with them, you know, you'd start off. And, and that's a, that type of, bottom-up empowerment, I, I find, is, is really useful in, in creating that spirit. That's great. Who are, the, who are those authors? Or who wrote their book, Putting Staff First? John Tomsett and Johnny Utley. Sounds great. We'll have to explore that further. I look forward to it. Yeah. So a, a few people on Twitter explicitly ask questions about kind of changing roles. So Zach Groschel asked, what's the most important thing about entering a new work environment or role? And Suzanne Ralu asked, what's the most important thing for a new department head in a new school to focus on? So is there, is there, is there some most important thing when we're kind of changing environments and trying to establish ourselves in a new environment? I think so. I think the most important thing about a new work environment is to establish your credibility as someone who does the job. It's not about reputation. You know, you have to sort of recognize that you need to sort of build that through positive engagement, doing, walking the talk, um, so as a teacher, you know, teaching great lessons, just getting on with that, like don't try to, you know, just get on with doing the, the thing that you need to do most importantly is, is teach well, 
get a reputation quickly amongst you know someone who's managed to behave your management well, uses the systems, and then produces good work from students. And then you can start sharing the way you do that with your colleagues. So, so just just focus on that. Just get get down to the business and, and deliver. Well, for a new head of department, well, I saw that question. It's a good one. I, I think it's in a way. I mean, you do need to do teach to teach well, but I think you do need to take an interest in everybody else. So the first thing I would do is to as quickly as possible see everybody else, talk to everyone else, and I'll find out what what their issues are. Because then I think that models a, 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 that thing of being interested in them. So then, of course, they need to get into things like the curriculum and assessment. But the first of all, the first thing to do, obviously, is like it's that team leadership role. Hi, everybody. Okay, so yeah, what, tell me, what's it like? You know, what are you? What are your challenges? What are your interests? What are you? What are you working on? And you find that out from people as quickly as possible. And then you then you have a, you know your team. And then you know who you're dealing with. And then you can start forming things like shared vision for the curriculum. And and then within a certain time, get to see them. Like get to once you've seen everybody teach, you really know people. You know, see them see them a couple of times. So it's that, it's that kind of getting to know people bit is key. And and modeling that that thing of yeah, I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. But then, of course, you do need to oh, quietly, as well as doing that, is teach well, because you, you've got to also be doing the, the doing. But you you sort of can't, when you're the head of department, you've got to almost like do that private, kind of privately initially, because as far as everyone else is concerned, you just need to be, be interested in them. But if your reputation in the classroom is not strong amongst your colleagues, it can undermine you a bit. So you do need to, to attend to that and make sure that you don't cut corners on that. Mm, walk the walk. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of students, what what's the most important thing about student behavior and student motivation? Haha. <laughs> I think the most thing about 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 that is feeling that you belong and that you have a stake, like it's for you, like and that you have an ownership of that. And and that's that's to do with self-regulation and that it also comes with some responsibility. So it's not like a simple thing of like it's not a free for all. But I do think that's important. So students, student behavior is, is making them feel like this is all for you. I mean, you're, you, you're as valued here as anybody else. And our motivation, it comes from the sense of a journey. Like this is where we're going and, you're, it's, and it's exciting and it matters for itself. So I, I think that's important. If the students don't see the point of doing things or they don't feel like what you're doing is anything to do with them. Now you can do that in lots of ways, of course. One of the most simple ways and you know, when you've when you've read Running the Room, you'll you'll have this. Everyone will be talking about norms and routines, but if you don't sort of throw it up for grabs in some giant debate and say, "Hey guys, do you want to join me on this journey?" Where the answer could be not really. <laughs> you just make it sort of normal. You just make it part of how it just is. You know, this is where we're going. No big deal. We're going to learn these interesting things, and you're you're with me as much as everyone else. Great. We're all in it together. We're going to be learning together. And when, when, we've, when we've got there, wow, won't it be great? Because we'll know and be able to explain these in- interesting ideas. So you, ju- you just make it sort of almost non-negotiable from the point of view that it's just not up for discussion. And that I think that, that, that just makes school life feel normal and routine. It's just embedded. So it, it, it doesn't have to be some giant speech of motivation. You know, it isn't. It's just almost the functional daily ordinariness of enthusiastic, positive engagement with the subject, which fosters that in an inclusive way. As soon as students feel like they don't need, they don't want to play your game because you've made me feel terrible, or uh, you never, you know, then, then they they start opting out. And and one of the reasons that can happen is because it's always too hard. Like, oh, uh, you're talking, you know. And I do think that's a problem, and that's where I, I think the the guided practice and scaffolding aspects of teaching are so important that we've got to get students to feel motivation comes through the joy of improvement. And if they're not, if there is no joy of improvement, well, what's the point? In fact, 
my kids have, have both through, been through the cycle of, say, learning a music instrument and giving up at a certain point. <laughs> and that, boy, those weeks before the final giving up were absolute torture because that, that balance of improvement to effort were just not, the balance was all going wrong. And they weren't prepared to make the effort any longer to make the improvement. Uh, I wasn't prepared to push them through that barrier. It was, so I do think motivation needs to have that cycle of, of, of reward. And, and sometimes teachers need to be attending to that. Like, how do I make that kid feel good about this? I need to make them feel successful. I'm not sure if that's the most important thing. So it's that, that, that sense of how do I distill that into the most important thing? And I, it's really the, the, the key idea there is students feeling in, it's up for them, like it's, there's, a, there's an incentivized to be part of the learning process. And that, but there are different ways to engineer that. Yeah, Bill Rogers, actually, when he was on the podcast, he emphasized basically above all else, the importance of students having a sense of belonging, which I think ties in quite really well with what you're saying there, having a sense that it's for them and they've got a place in it. So yeah, really powerful there, Tom. And this is the final, what's the most important thing question. And it's, it's on the topic that I am probably the most passionate and interested in at the moment. And that is, what's the most important thing about supporting students to develop as effective and independent learners? I think it's to see the big picture of where any element of learning falls. So it's, so you, you, you can form a kind of a bigger scale schema for the territory that we're in. And then, then students have the sense of journey forming within it. So it's a bit like if we're climbing a mountain, we all understand like, this is, you know, very obvious cliche of this, but we, we, the goal is to get there. And so we, everything else that comes between now and then is about that. And we know the reason. So we're, we're then strategizing about how to do that. I mean, if you don't have that, what is the point? What is the point of this sort of hour of slog and sweat and pointlessness? It, there is no reason. It's, it feels, you know, so setting the scene. And then, and then within that, it's the students then learning that how much of that process they can engineer for themselves. So what can you do in order to get there? Well, and it's not, I, I think we can get too woolly about this Learn, teachers being facilitating learning because that that's then start starts saying like teachers students are on their own and they're not but they can actually drive a lot of their own learning if you if you make that explicitly part of the process so here's where you're going to go so therefore what do we know already what can you still need to learn and at every moment in a teaching process you're referencing this idea of the students themselves knowing where they are so whenever we do a test for example in science I don't need to know the answers. I don't need to know which kids got the answers right or wrong initially. They know. They do. They who got it right? Okay. Who got it wrong? Are you like what do you which ones did you get wrong? You need to know that. So do you now know what was right and wrong about your own learning? Great. Okay. I that's too much information for me to absorb, but they can individually be processing, okay, that's what I'm supposed to know. I'm not sure yet. I can now go and learn this. So it's it's that that's where it looks like at a micro level, like each student conscious of their gaps and how to fill them but that only works if they've got a sense of the, the bigger map of the totality of what I'm, I'm trying to engage with so I, I think that's the most important thing without the bigger map we never kind of know where we are and so everything feels a bit confusing and, and slightly pointless wonderful we might move into some closing questions now Tom if that works for you so I see one of you is one of the most premier bloggers in and tweeters out there when it comes to good quality content on learning and teaching, could you give us some suggestions regarding other valuable people to follow or kind of blogs to subscribe to? And I thought one interesting way to do this might be to suggest some bloggers or tweeters for different subject areas, but feel free to answer this question however you, however you see fit. 
But I, I do think it does come to subject specific. I mean, there are some good sort of general bloggers about sort of politics and things, but I, I, I would say as a general rule, so I kind of almost count myself out here, but the best blogs are about subjects, about specifics, uh, generally. So let me say someone like Adam Boxer, for example, a lot of people would have heard of him, but he, he's great on lots of levels because he is very forensic and he writes these very detailed blogs, which explain a lot of very complex ideas. He's got, I could, I could start listening, but he, he's to me, I, I'd say he's a sort of classic and very strong blogger who makes a difference. But spinning off from him, so there's a group of people who, who write under the hashtag CogSciSci, C-O-G-S-C-I-S-C-I, who, who write about cognitive science and science. And for, in that, you've got people like Ruth Walker, who writes a superb blog. And I think she's just one of the, the one of several I could have listed, but her blog is full of a mixture of like, what's it like to be a real teacher, but also some really sort of like detailed analysis of some concepts and how they apply in science teaching. And you feel like the real teacher really doing the job working out these ideas. So that, that would be an example. And Ruth also mixes in some quite kind of philosophic and poetic posts at times as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are other people who, someone like Mark Entzer, who, who writes prolifically <laughs> for, the, for the TS and his own blog, is another good person for capturing the kind of the moment in terms of what's going on in the classroom. He's, always, he's very close to the action. Because he's, like, he's one of those people that you think, you know, if you want to sort of get a, almost like a classic teacher who's doing the business, leading a subject, thinking about these ideas hard and communicating them well, he is, he is that person. And so he writes very well. And his blogs are, you know, they're, they've got this sort of nice polemic aspect to them as well as the, as well as the technical. And I think, I think it's important. I think good bloggers are not afraid to express a view. Like, it's not just a dispassionate thing, but it's also not just purely kind of ranty. It's, and it, it's, it's about how do I do this well, but with a bit of kind of verve and a bit of zeal and sometimes being a bit opinionated. And I, I don't think that's unhealthy because it pushes you, makes you think, okay, do I agree with that or not? And it, and it, it makes you think hard about, about your beliefs. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 there are other people who've written extensively about, say, primary education, like Claire Seeley is an is a excellent blogger. Some of her blogs have influenced me a lot in terms of things like curriculum and assessment uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, I, I, um, I could list more. But those, those are some of the sorts of people, uh, I, I think. There's a whole heap of English. I'm, I'm not an English specialist, so I, I'd, I'd uh, be loath to kind of pick too many out of the hat there. But people like Claire Stoneman, and there are people who write great blogs about English teaching and sort of general school leadership issues who I, I've got a lot of respect for. Fantastic. And we'll link to all of them in, in the show notes. Next one, what are the three or slightly more, what are the three best books that you've read and the ones that have had the biggest impact in your thinking in and around education? Okay, well, I think you sort of alluded to this on, on our Twitter feed earlier, but I, 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 the one I, I always say has influenced me the most is Trivium 21st Century by Martin Robinson. In fact, I did a, uh, an interview with him and Sam Gorse, who's a, she's a head teacher in, in England just before the end of July, where we, we got together for a chat online about Trivium. She and I are huge fans of Trivium. So Martin's book, Trivium 21st Century, influenced me a lot because it, it, it pulled together a lot of ideas about traditional views of teaching with slightly more progressive ideas. And the Trivium, which includes a sort of idea of grammar being the knowledge that you teach, dialectic, which is all about the experience and the kind of emotional side, but also the hands-on, all sorts of different things, the journey. And then the rhetoric, that getting students to speak and communicate about their learning. So this idea of the knowledge, the exploration and communication. So I feel really powerful 
uh, recipe, if you like, or, or structure for thinking about curriculum and teaching. So I, I found that hugely influential in various ways. The, the next book, probably slightly retrospectively, because I feel like it influenced me kind of a bit late in the day, but now I refer to it constantly, is Dan Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School? And that, probably, that must come up on everybody's list, but it's, 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 it's such a strong book. It's the idea there, you know, memory, memory is the residue of thought, understanding is remembering in disguise. I mean, these are things you just don't forget, and it makes you think so hard planning lessons in, in, in through the lens of what students will think about, narr- power of stories, and also there's this whole cognitive science model, what, his, his, his basic structure around, you know, why do students forget everything I say? It's just a great chapter. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it, it's really, really great to read that book. And I'm more, I suppose in terms of its influence at the time, rather than kind of now, is Dylan Williams' Inside the Black Box with Paul Black. There's a pamphlet that he wrote in 1998. And that, that was really influential for me at the time, and still is, in a broader sense, because Dinner William has written subsequent books. But that pamphlet, Inside the Black Box with Paul Black, was so significant at that time. I, I, because there, was, there were literally no books in school before then about teaching. Like There were none. Like, there was not a staff library or this idea that there is literature to refer to, research-based. It just it didn't exist. We, did, we might have had some in our student base 10 years before. Suddenly there was this research paper saying, we have studied this. And guess what? Something that's obvious is when you put comments on the page next to the grade, students don't read the comment. They're only going to read the grade. We've studied it. That's, like, that's what happens. You think, God, we need to listen to this. Comments only marking. Let's, let's stop giving those grades. And the simple idea that the nature of assessment is something to, to worry about whether it's working. I think that was the most important idea. Dylan William is shouting that at us. Some stuff doesn't work that you're doing. <laughs> so why are you still doing it? it? It was such an important thing. And I can't stress that enough. Until that point, I don't think, in my, that was like, at that point, 11 years of teaching. That had never been in a conversation with anybody. But, that there's stuff that we should be doing because it works. <laughs> it's stuff we're doing because we just always have. And that's just how it is. And, and that, to me, was very influential and continues to be the idea that we constantly evaluate our impact. How do we know it's working? What's the evidence? And specifically around assessment, this idea that formative assessment is the bedrock of assessment, the stuff you do day in, day out, not the stuff you write on the spreadsheet. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm quite familiar with two of those books, and I've had Dan Willingham and um, Dylan William on the podcast as well. So I, I guess you've uh, pointed out to me that Martin Robinson is the, the next one to, to check out. I really look forward to diving into that book. What are you most excited about at the moment, Tom? I'm really excited about walkthroughs. Uh, and I can't say that enough. It's, it's, I, I just feel like Oliver and I, and with John Cat, um, we've, we've hit upon something which has got a lot of potential to pull together a kind of how we do, you know, doing training with teachers hands-on with a kind of publishing aspect of it and writing in a way which has, I think, got a lot of chance to make CPD a really positive experience for teachers and that we're getting some good response to it, way bigger than we ever expected. So including some international things like we've just signed a 10-year sort of memorandum of understanding with a charity called Aprenda that work with hard-to-reach schools in Brazil, Lebanon, and Zambia. With like These schools are this unbelievably difficult, challenging, and they need training materials. So we've essentially done a deal with them where it was a kind of reciprocal arrangement where they make some videos and we give them materials. And that, to me, like we've produced something which has got people are saying, oh, I'd love to be able to use this here. And so for me, just seeing this come off the page, being in a school yesterday, we're seeing a book that I've written with resources that we've made in a school being used by teachers really teaching. It's like, wow, this is, this is exciting. So for me, that's very exciting to, to feel like we're making something which actually 
people need and want and are positive about is is very rewarding. So yeah, very excited about that. And volume two is sort of my my kind of thing I'm doing whenever I have a bit of downtime, writing a bit more of that. Any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? <laughs> well, depends if you're on holiday or not, in which case they'd be saying, you know, chill out and don't do anything. I suppose if, if, from a teaching point of view, I, I just think it is to say is to you know, keep reading and keep thinking about how learning happens in your subject and just do whatever, even small things to just keep yourself informed about ideas about learning because they all accumulate into a richer kind of understanding. And even if you don't directly change your practice, it's just the, the reward, the intellectual rewards that come from just knowing why things work, I, I think is fascinating. So the more you can do to increase your understanding of the thing you do all the time as a teacher, the better when it's not the holidays. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to, to go back in. And uh, so that's what I, 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 my encouragement. Find, you know, don't read too many books at once. Just pick, pick one, think about it. You know, hopefully that you'll find it pays off for you. Tom Sherrington, thank you so much for your time today. I would say that this has been the most ambitious EIII episode to date, not from my point of view. In fact, it was one of the easiest interviews from my perspective. The, the questions were so broad, but from the perspective of the guest, I've basically put you in the hot seat and asked you about what's the most important thing about every single facet of education I could possibly think of. And in every case, you've come back with absolute nuggets of wisdom and really practical advice. And I think it's just an incredible testament to the level of your experience and your depth of knowledge in this space. And, you know, I was kind of in, in some ways a little bit nervous about this episode because it was so ambitious, but I can say that you've definitely risen to the challenge. And I'm sure that listeners at home will be, you know, walking away today thinking, wow, I need to listen to this again. And there's so many things I can, I can take away. In terms of the most important thing for principals, if I had to answer that question, I would say sign up to your blog because there are, you know, your blog, and this is the reason why I knew you'd be able to handle today's kind of broad, broad discussion. It just ticks off so many different issues. It's so broad. And every time I open one of your new posts, it just brings new insights and, and really just new ways of seeing and thinking about education that's so valuable. Saying that and talking about the breadth, one of the main things that really came out and was like the thread that ran through this interview, I would say, is an emphasis on people and knowing your people, knowing the people within your team, you know, right from the point at which you're trying to diagnose the issues with your school and how to move forwards, right to, you know, becoming a head of department, and then also supporting students in your own classroom, helping them have a sense of belonging and seeing them the bigger picture and how, where they fit into it. And so I think that's a really powerful lesson that I'll take away, and it's fascinating to see it running through all the questions, or almost all the questions that I've asked you today. So, Tom Sherrington, it's been an absolute honour to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom with us today. And I will be dutifully following your blog in future. Well, honestly, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've loved it. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice opportunity for me to share some thoughts. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you, you know, you're so positive about, about the blog and so on. And I really enjoy the whole you know, Twitter space and blogging world. There's lots of fantastic people out there. And I love the whole dynamic that we've created sort of as a whole community. And this is a... Your, your blog and your work is a huge part of that. So thank you to you as well. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EIIR podcast with Tom Sherrington. As always, you can find show notes with links to all those resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website where you can buy any of Tom's books mentioned and also pre-order Cognitive Load Theory in Action. 
And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off. And as mentioned, if you'd like to start supporting the show and receive a 100% discount off my forthcoming book, go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up for the average monthly contribution of $5 and receive your unique code for the book on release day. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.